This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared it's not liminal. Jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. Position not at, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will. But... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. <laughs> Dimitri. I'm Khaled. And today we are going to go back once again to the subliminal cinema for the first time, I think, in a while. I don't even remember what the last one was. Yeah. Polanski, I don't, maybe? Was it, I think maybe it was Polanski. Yikes. Um, wow. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. It has been a while, but I think that especially in the week that we're recording this when the topic of um, occult imagery and pop culture has reached uh, dizzying new highs, you could yes. say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which yeah, we'll try not to get. Uh, yeah, certainly on the mind. I mean, yeah, we, uh, we, we uh, took over another podcast uh, uh, going <laughs> on about it um, for a while. If you guys want to drag us out on Cool Zone, uh, you can hear a subliminal jihad. Uh, rant about that issue. I did You Can't Win about yeah, it as well. We, we um, shot our wad on the Luciferians over there, so... Yes. <laughs> you know, uh, well, hopefully that won't bleed over. But, you know, I think it was... We I think we had already planned doing this episode before the uh, Astro World fiasco happened and all that discourse, but um, I think it timed up quite synchronistically because today we're going to profile another foreign director... I think people like in the grotto have asked us about this individual and their films and like want us basically, I guess, to do some kind of sus check on them. Yeah, I had the sense this was a requested topic. Um, I think it was at some point. It's probably far down on the list of Q&A questions that we haven't gotten to yet. But but it definitely has popped up. And, you know, when I first saw somebody asking about it, I felt a little bit embarrassed because actually even though I'm sort of aware of this guy, I hadn't really gone and like watched his films, his very famous films. So today we're talking about Alejandro Jodorowsky, the, uh, the Chilean high weirdo, uh, <laughs> high art filmmaker, um, who surprisingly is still with us. I think he's, he's 92 or 93 years old, but he's, he's I'm still s- out there chugging. The he's kind of like high art... Yeah, his psycho magic is working. He's sort of like we were saying before we recorded, like he's sort of um, like high art cinema's Noam Chomsky in a way, mm-hmm. to some extent. Yeah. But 
I, I don't want that to mean that we're going to take him down today the way we not took as down. much as we take down Chomsky for sure. Yeah, definitely. I'm not. a little bit sussed out by Hodorowski. Uh, you know, maybe I don't know. I feel like maybe I'm a bit more sussed out by him than you are, but I'm not as sussed out by him as I am by like other filmmakers we've discussed, like Kenneth Anger. Um, yes. Who's so. both kind of a contemporary of, and at some point, at least somewhat of a friend of Hodorowski. I found that there's a famous picture of them together at kind of this publicity event that Kenneth Anger organized in London in the early 70s when he was trying to raise money for Lucifer Rising. And then I think mm-hmm. he got like $15,000 from like a, you know, a state owned like British film fund. I think we talked about that in the Anger episode of like, like, you know, basically like British film fund gives out 15,000 pounds for devil film, yeah, you know, right. like the headlines like that, it caused a stir, but the, but like he invited a bunch of famous kind of, uh, celebrities and directors. There's, mm-hmm. so there's a picture of, um, Dennis Hopper, Hodorowski, Kenneth Anger, and the other, the guy who ended up playing Osiris in Lucifer rising, who later killed himself, uh, uh, as Kenneth Anger said, a lot of my a lot of people around me have killed themselves <laughs> mm-hmm. um, or died. It's certainly true, but uh, but I tried to look a little more into like, did they have a deep friendship or did they really vibe with each other? They definitely had friends in common at various times. Like Mick Jagger comes to mind, um, and maybe sort of ran in some of the same circles, but. Uh, I haven't been able to find too much of Hodorowski kind of praising Kenneth Anger or like it, particularly because both these guys, they have a, a number of similarities, but they're both filmmakers that very uh, publicly talk about film as a magical medium and sort of themselves as like magicians, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, the, the main difference, and you're right, like, I mean, there's definitely some aspects of Hodorowski's background, which uh, his, his life journey, his spiritual journey that we'll get into, that definitely are like a bit sus and like worth kind of uh, digging into a little bit. But overall, the impression I get from him is that he has not overtly embraced like the left hand path the Luciferian path, the way that Kenneth Anger has. And in a way, like perhaps maybe I'm being overly charitable, but I almost feel like these are kind of two similar wizards. One went hard left into the left hand. I mean, he's a Nazi, but you know, you know what I mean? Hard left hand path. And Hodorowski <laughs> kind of uh, went the other way into the, the white hand, you know, the right hand path. Like he went into like doing kind of white magic, which isn't to say. I feel like they are both. I don't know if Joder- if Hodorowski is a uh, I'm like still on that film school habit of calling him Jodorowski, but I don't know oh, if Hodorowski that, is. Cr- yeah, his name. Uh, people Everyone, do that. Yeah, people in do. Fact, I watched uh, in Hodorowski's Dune. I I was watching and I had to like really pay attention for like 20 minutes to like try to lock down how do you actually pronounce his name, like waiting for him to say it because I noticed depending on what country you're from and what language you speak, it seems like mm-hmm. Americans like to say Americans and French people like to say Jodorowsky, but mm-hmm. people from like German kind of speaking countries, people like Nicholas Winding Refn and maybe like H.R. Geiger call him Jodorowsky because that's what a J would be right. in German. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then people in South America, in, in Latin, you know, Spanish speaking countries call him Hodorowsky 
and everyone just sort of does it. But I think I'm sticking today a hard on, well, first of all, I, I think it's kind of the actual normative way to say it. Hodorowski and not Hodorowski? Well, I, I think it's, it's weird because I like the W doesn't fit into Spanish in any logical way. It's mm-hmm. it's from it's like a Jewish you you it's like a Jewish Russian name basically. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that people kind of say Jodorowsky, like I, I mean, or sorry, Hodorowsky, because the J is okay. Spanish because he's well, he was born in Chile, right? Yes, I think that uh, that's consistent. Because then why why don't you call him Alejandro Jodorowsky, right? Like. Mm-hmm. I, I think we could say Hodorovsky. Um and I mean if you wanted to be really Slavic about it, you'd be like Hodorovsky, but well, we won't we won't right. VFI well, that. I feel w. like Hodorovsky <laughs> is uh I wouldn't necessarily say that he's a right hand path practitioner in yeah. the like conventional sense like i mean yeah i'd say he's definitely like a little further right on the uh occult uh compass than you know he's a little bit further towards the uh you know the the uh the right hand on the occult compass than kenneth anger but i don't know i i feel like he's still like very much into like magical acts of will like but yeah no i get what you mean like you know he's more of a sort of love and light type mystic who wants to like you know kind of like uplift humanity in some way but i don't yeah i mean it's hard to be as sauce as kenneth anger you know so it's like, yeah but even know, alistair uh, crowley who i know that hodorowsky is definitely aware of but i i don't think i saw him necessarily like praising somebody like yeah, crowley or saying like that guy's eclectic, great you know he's not like kenneth anger is like a straight up thelemite whereas um Hodorowski is, you know, a little bit more eclectic in terms of his influences. And he's yeah, very, like, he, he's, yeah. I mean, a, a poet, like he's a, a mystic poet or, um, or as he said, you know, he's chafed when, because he's Latin American, people have called him a magical realist. And he says, no, like, I don't believe in magical realism. I believe in realistic magic. Right. Yeah. You know, and stuff, or he says like, his... I'm an atheist, but I, I don't, I don't believe in God, but I feel him everywhere. <laughs> it's like okay like, you know yeah, like okay. it's it's sort of like he yeah it's like he does believe in god but he doesn't like set he doesn't ascribe to the sort of like straightforward yeah, thing of like of belief um you know when rather than that god is like knowledge or something that's sensed maybe is the idea um, or something that is beyond our understand it is like the intelligence that is beyond our understanding so in a certain sense it's like not so clashy with like traditional religion but also he's well, yeah sort of i mean i, I have my own issues with the paradigm of like god being something that you believe in you know that wasn't really like that's really come to the fore like there are issues of like belief and certainty in god and, and doubt like in uh traditional discussions of god but definitely like the idea of like belief in god like whether or not you believe in god it's like much more prominent in terms of contemporary discourses of god uh in a way that like you know it's more taken for granted in a traditional context is you know god being a name for something that's you know very immediately real so i think Mm -hmm. i kind of get the point in a way um you know, yeah, uh, and and we can get into later yeah. like his specific influences, like Gurdjieff is going to come up, yeah, and Zen Buddhism, um, uh, yeah, and uh, but a different the, type of sus lord, you know, like that's the <laughs> thing, like is Idris Shah, like like he's not satanic really either, you know, he's about like helping people, definitely not like a th- a thelemite in the way that Kenneth Anger is, but 
you know, like well, when you I would argue that like surface, when he started like writing, bit. if you started yeah. when, when he started writing Tom Clancy like fantasy novels about like the Mujahideen, like you know, fighting like the evil Soviets in the eighties, he sort of threw his hat. I feel like in, into the into the sus ring a little well, bit. Well, also when he was like a apprentice uh, to Gerald Gardner, but like on the surface, you yeah. know, he's like, and when he like tried to conflate Sufism with like uh like weird like witch cults or something like yeah uh, yeah you know, that's like but it, you know on the surface like no like what if you scratch like underneath like a little bit you know and he's also like very influenced by Gurdjieff um for sure you know, for sure sort of Gurdjieff world yeah. and and a lot of characters that we've uh discussed before are going to pop up in the life journey of Hodorowsky uh like John C. Lilly and yeah. Um, some music industry that he, people that are uh, kind of sus. Uh, I, yeah, and, I didn't realize he officiated at Marilyn Manson's wedding to Dita Von Teese. Uh, that's what it sounds wait, like. Wait, Hodorowski did? Yeah. Oh, um, God. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we might, we, might, <laughs> we might jump upon some things here that, uh, that, that run up the, the karmic debt a little bit, but mm-hmm. we'll see. Yeah, there's um, like the, I feel like the big salient issue is like the kind of like rape issue. <laughs> that might like you know uh jump to mind uh that's like a big i feel like the biggest hodorowsky controversy is that he claimed that the rape in his film el topa which we'll probably discuss was like a real rape that he filmed of the sort of main actress you know it's one of those womanless movies up to a certain point like you know for a while there aren't too many uh women in the film which is something you don't uh you know real throwback in that sense but you know the one woman uh that you do see after a little bit. She has a, a pretty violent rape scene. You know, Hodorowski generally did like star in his movies and write them and also direct them. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he he said like, you know. In 1972, like, he wrote in his yeah. book, El Topo, a book of the film. He said, I really raped her and she screamed. And like he, yeah, he went on to kind of explain how this is like part of an artistic process that yeah, definitely uh, does she's de- frigid until El Topo rapes her. That's why I show a stone phallus in that scene which spouts water. Very profound. So uh, he actually got canceled in twenty nineteen from the El Museo del Barrio in New York, canceled a major retrospective dedicated to him after reassessing the controversial interview he gave in which he claims to have raped a female co star. Yeah, so he said it in a book and in an interview and his statement of it uh, in 2019, he said to Art Forum, uh, these words, I've raped my actress, was said 50 years ago by El Topo, a bandit dressed in black leather that nobody knew. They were words, not facts, surrealist publicity in order to enter the world of cinema from a position of obscurity. I do not condone the act of rape, but exploited the shock value of the statement at the time, following years in the panic movement and other iterations of harnessing shock to motivate energetic release. I acknowledge that this statement is problematic and that it presents fictional violence against a woman as a tool for exposure. And now, 50 years later, I regret that this is being read as truth. My practice is centered on healing and love. I invite further dialogue in the spirit of progress. Um, and his wife also uh, uh, spoke out in defense of him and said he has never raped anyone and he's a respectful, generous, and deeply good man who has been subjected to, quote, attacks, scandals, intimidations, threats, slanders. So Mar- Mara Lorenzio, the actress in question, ha- had not spoken publicly about the incident and her whereabouts are actually currently unknown. So, like, they mm. couldn't even get into contact with her to, yeah. Yeah, basically confirm or 
deny it? Yeah. Huh. He also said in a 2007 interview to Empire Magazine, quote, I didn't rate Mara, but I penetrated her with her consent. And in a Facebook post in 2017, the artist said he had made the statements to, quote, shock interviewers. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he did make the statements to shock interviewers. I'm not sure if they were lies or not, or if the, like, suggestion that they were lies is a lie. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. I just want to say this before it slips away uh, at the end of this article. The cancellation of this exhibition comes three weeks after the museum backpedaled on its decision to honor the German princess Gloria von Thurn und Taxis. The socialite is known for her ties to ultra-conservatives such as former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon. Wow. Uh, so that that's like, you know, that's from Crying of Lot uh, 49, oh, uh, the Thurn and Taxis. We've talked about her before, yeah. Gloria um, von Thurn and Taxis. Yeah, yeah, so I don't... Uh, I don't know. Um, Hodorowski might might know her actually because he's talked about rubbing elbows with the European bourgeoisie, particularly in France. That's where he actually met Mick Jagger in the mm. early '70s at like a party of like the ultra wealthy, of which I guess he was uh, invited from time to time because he's such a colorful character. I don't know about the. I mean, the rape thing. The thing of he penetrated her without her con- with her consent sounds extremely like something Hodorowski would do in like 1970. Like yeah. he was one of those theater guys, like in those, you know, kind of like in De Palma movies that but like Dionysus yeah, 69 like kind of shit. It sounds like pretty nebulous. Like, yeah, uh, it's very nebulous. Um, you know, I, I, mean, uh, I mean, yeah. Like what is like consent to, it just seems it's all very vague and like without the actual statement of the person, like, yeah, I mean, again, like he's in trouble for statements that he made which he then tries to walk back and say that they were intended to shock. So again, like without the actual victim, her whereabouts being unknown, that's a bit <laughs> sus itself. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, like, it definitely is. So well, you know, it's just something again, to keep yeah, in it mind. Is, as it we is move murky. Through. Like we can't really know because he, like you know, he indicted himself and then tried to walk it back. But you know, uh, I definitely wouldn't. Um, come down on the side of saying that he he didn't do it or that I'm convinced that he didn't uh, at all. You know, I, I, can't I, you say know, that. I feel I, like I really. Yeah. Uh, I, don't um, know. Um, I mean, like in that world of like, yeah, I mean, we talked about before, like that world of like, you know, uh, uh, you know, he mentioned in that statement, like it has become a famous film that has been, you know, like uh, screened around the world and endorsed by John Lennon and Yoko Ono in that very like, you know, like old filmmaker type way, like when or old, <laughs> old anyone famous type way where like they like weirdly just like sort of robotically when they have to defend themselves in some way, like just talk about like the accomplishments that like they've had, which like we all know because otherwise we wouldn't be talking to them. But, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. my point is that like in that world of like John Lennon and like, you know, these like sort of rock star mystic celebrities, like I think yeah. that that type of thing happens a fair amount. Like, you know, yeah. uh, especially in this kind of era where there's like new agey stuff, there's like radical therapy, like group therapy drugs, techniques, yeah. there's experimental theater. Like there's just all these new things. And like, we've definitely talked before about the kind of like the dark side of like liberation of like the sexual liberation moment of the seventies where like, then like, you know, David Bowie's having like threesomes of like a 15 year old, you know, like it just it goes to like weird places like yeah. real fast. And it almost seems like who wasn't doing it. You know, it's yeah, like hard to find Judith people Molina during Paradise Now, which was, you know, a, a play was uh, for the uh, what were they called? The um, the living theater. She was like raped on stage in front of the whole audience in the theater, like during this play, Jesus. like, you know, in uh, 
in during that time, I think. I think in the 60s, I want to say. Yeah. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah so yeah, okay, but yeah, we'll we'll see, you know, to what extent that that comes up later. I mean, it, it's an interesting contrast like Roman Polanski who has so much of that kind of like violence against women in his movies and yeah. or like eroticized violence and then it ended up kind of spilling into his, you know, off-stage life basically in these kind of spectacular, gruesome, scandalous ways, but no, nothing on that level. Like, uh, Hodorowski doesn't seem to be, and maybe particularly later, because well, he also, I mean, he had El a turn Tobo towards... does, because... Like, yeah, I mean, El Tobo... Uh, yeah, like, yeah. Also, yeah. like, he, he went through... He was on a real, like, he was a real spiritual quester in the 1970s, and we'll, we'll walk through, like, uh-huh. how the success of these, these two main movies, El Topo and the Holy Mountain, uh, kind of you know, transformed his life and introduced him to like, you know, new rungs of society. But he also like one of the things that kind of fucked up his career was in the mid seventies, he was supposed to adapt this erotic thriller kind of not this erotic drama, I think called the story of O, which was Uh, like very like seventies libertine, almost like Desaad kind of like, like real. Yeah. And, but then at that point, by the mid seventies, he had like gotten turned on to feminism. And then he, even though he had like signed on to like, agreed to like, you know, adapt this book into a movie. He was like, no, this is like, this is a chauvinist fucking blah, blah, blah. I'm not doing it. And so then, uh, I don't know, a lot of investors got mad at him, et cetera, et cetera. So like, he's, he's, I think maybe, uh, like El Topo was probably the, the worst example of, the instincts of like being, I don't know, like a lecherous experimental theater director kind of thing, like letting the, letting the male gaze really just like go wild. But again, there's more elements to his work than that. So I don't want us to get so hung up on like, is he a me too? Did he get me too or not? Uh, yeah. we'll not talk uh, about. We don't need to litigate whether, uh, you know, I don't think it's possible to truly litigate like whether he did it, but you know, just, uh, something to uh put out there i mean that's like a really interesting like example uh you know and like an appalling notion that i think does attest to kind of like you know these i mean the sort of the si- a similar sensibility to kenneth anger like having like real snuff films or like having people uh yeah. who really died you know like i need to do a real rape you know i need to have yeah. like where i had the symbolic phallus like in the background to capture this sort of myth- mystical truth or whatever otherwise it won't be real in the same way you know i think that does kind of feed into his magical philosophy of cinema uh for sure for sure yeah if it was even if it was an exaggeration you know i think that even like that el topo would say that you know uh in his persona as el topo in the the black clad bandit uh you know the mole uh-huh. It's, worth, it's worth it's worth kind of yeah. noting <laughs> the the mentality right. yeah, and, yeah and stuff like that but you know i mean he also i think he had a lot of issues from his childhood to kind of work through which he's like chronicled later in, in the last decade with uh two two movies that are like explicitly autobiographical where his son plays his father and uh, like some of his grandchildren play a young version of him etc and uh, uh yeah like an interesting um interesting early life uh for him so like i don't know maybe we can where should we start here like should we give uh, a little background for those first or yeah we can give well, background give I a little guess, background yeah. so the other person that i think is in, that popped up into my head as i was kind of reading about his life that is another like 
very close contemporary of his and also a very famous and kind of visionary South American was Che Guevara, who I think was born within like, they were within two or three years of each other. Uh, Hodorowski was born in 1929. So they both came of age and kind of, you know, rebelled against like the status quo of things, but in kind of very different ways. And I think that, uh, well, if looking at his biography, which like I said, he has dramatized in the, uh, the dance of reality and endless poetry, you can kind of see maybe why he went in like a different direction than Che Guevara. So he was born in um, like the port town of Tocopilla, Chile, like I said, 1929, which is like a very strange, have you looked at pictures of that place? Uh, no, I haven't. It's a very kind of stark. He, I mean, he sets basically the first autobiographical film in uh, yeah, Tokopia. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to watch Dance of Reality. Uh, you but, definitely yeah. get a sense of like his really stunning use of like colors and desert vistas and stuff because it's like this mm-hmm. desert region that's on the ocean and is like almost like this rusty port city that still has like very colorful like streets and like buildings and stuff like that. But is it's kind of close to a lot of the mines that you know we i think we touched on before even with like gustavus myers like anaconda copper and a lot of american corporations that were down there basically you know uh expropriating all these resources um uh Hodorowsky basically grew up in this town um where that was happening and i guess he he kind of developed a lot of resentment for the kind of uh, the yankees so to speak um who did not treat the the workers very well down there, but <clears throat> but he also grew up a little bit of, of an outsider because his parents were kind of Jewish Ukrainians um, who yeah had settled basically in South America. Now this is interesting because he always comes he always kind of stresses his how much of like an apolitical guy he is. His father Jaime Hodorowski was kind of a, a sort of like a, a not a sort of a poor merchant who ran a a, a store um mm-hmm. i think it was called like cafe ukraina um and he was a stalinist yeah, actually like literally a stalinist reality, i did read that like his father is portrayed as like a, a maniacal stalinist yeah um, like basically yeah. right in the beginning of it like he has like the uh like casa ukraina um place that has like huge red stars with sickle and hammers and the decals out front and then inside of the store which sells like ladies like hosiery and stuff like that um, had, there's just a gigantic portrait of Stalin inside of it. And his father, who, like I said, is played by his son, Brontis Hodorowski, it basically has like a big bushy mustache and wears like an exact like Stalin kind of, you know, that button up kind of coat that Stalin would always, you know, famously mm-hmm. wear. Yeah. And uh, I mean, for anybody that's like hypersensitive to uh, anti-Stalin stuff, this movie might be triggering. Because uh, because he's he's basically kind of an abusive, domineering, uh, homophobic, like close-minded, like harsh yeah, father. Yeah, he's, he's he's authoritarian, all right. He's yeah, very he's authoritarian, he's and he's obsessed. He's totally freaked out that his son, who's portrayed as having like beautiful blonde hair, is um is uh whatever the Latin word for um, faggot is, uh, he repeatedly accuses <laughs> young Alejandro. I, it might yeah, be sorry. a cabron or a, a carajo. I forget which one it is. But um, yeah, he basically, uh, and he's really tough on him. And like, you need to be tough, like, because the world is hard. And he also repeatedly insists to him that there is no God. You die and you die and you rot. 
there's nothing. So he was like a real like capital A atheist um, communist kind of guy. And so I think that seems to have I mean, basically, big shocker, uh, Hodorowski goes to college and becomes an anarchist, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, um, and like a poet, you know, because he just wants to rebel. And he feel, he said that, you know, his father kind of denied him any possibility of kind of uh, a spiritual consciousness or like a spiritual life. He was always told that there was nothing to any of that. So as soon as he got from out from under the thumb of, uh, you know, his household, he and I think they they ended up moving to Santiago eventually, and then he started hanging around um, poets when he was a teenager, and started hanging out with poets uh, like uh, Stella Diaz Varin and Enrique Lin. Got into anarchism, started going to college, uh, studying psychology, but then I think dropped out after two years, and then he got into being a mime. And <laughs> and then worked as a clown in a circus, which you can see in like all of his movies. He's obsessed yeah. with mime stuff well, and circus like, stuff. Yeah. I mean, well, if you're interested in the like interaction between like magic and, and theater or film, like, you know, obviously you're going to have some kind of like clown type interest, you know, I mean, Absolutely. Kenneth Anger also had that sort of Harlequin interest, you know, like uh, that's like one of the biggest locuses of sort of the connection between like when you get back to the sort of ritualistic elements of theater yeah, you know it's you're totally. always going to run into clowns and, and masquerade and that type of thing so and correct yeah. me if i'm wrong but when kenneth anger was young didn't he make some kind of like little like stop motion sci-fi movie called the minotaur yeah he did Okay, well, it's just interesting. I don't know if it was that, stop motion, but well, or it was a some yeah. movie called the Minotaur, and it uh, had some like weird, like upsetting, like I don't know, like yeah, children it, in space. Yeah, it was <laughs> a bit on the moon, it was, or like yeah. on the moon, or like on some for, a distant planet or something. And yeah, like the Minotaur, it was basically like similar to the story of Theseus and the Minotaur, but the Minotaur was like eating like kids, and they were like horribly. Yeah, yeah. Huh. we described it in our Kenneth Anger episode. I remember. Yes, we it, did. Well, it's yeah, interesting. Yeah. I actually hadn't noticed this because in 1947 he founded his own theatrical troupe, the Teatro Mimico, um, which grew to 50 members by 1952. And in 1953, he wrote his first play, El the Minotaur. Minotaur, the Minotaur. Oh, hey. <sighs> and I then mean, classical after subjects are very popular like sort of yeah of uh, course thing. yeah yeah but, a, but that's an interesting uh, synchronicity I mean, that they Minotaurs, both like these yeah. two guys were so similar in a lot of ways like grew up in different parts of the world and they still I mean, were like it, all about the, the minotaur. minotaur you know that is like the horned god kind of you know yeah, well you know we'll see we'll see okay so after that he moved he decided that there weren't a lot of opportunities for him so he moved to paris and then he got really into the mime game. I, he was studying under Etienne de Creux and then uh, eventually joined the troupe of Marcel Marceau. He was one of de Creux's students. And, you know, I've heard of Marcel Marceau before. And then he went on a world tour mm -hmm. with Marceau's troupe and wrote a few uh, routines for the group and then kind of went back to theater. And then I think in 1957 was his first attempt at filmmaking, creating Les Têtes Intervertis, uh, interverti, I think. Uh, I don't know the, why. That's a hard French word. Head? The The severed heads. Okay. <laughs> a 20-minute adaptation of Thomas Mann's novella. It consisted almost entirely of mime and told the surreal story of a head-swapping merchant who helps a young oh man God, find courtship success. Hodorowski yeah, played the lead Return role. Oz is scary. Uh, <laughs> I know, right? Um, um, so then in 1960, he moved to Mexico City and... Um, I guess 
uh, he would go back to France a lot. He had some interaction with uh, Andre Breton, the surrealist um, yeah. artist who I feel like that's like a name that I've just like heard a million times, but I don't know that much about him um, or how sus he is. But anyways, yeah. um, uh, but he actually felt any yeah. suss about him either. I feel like my knowledge of him is like, you know, generally like cursory knowledge, too. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. I'm not so, familiar with any susness uh, going on there. I don't think they're, you know. Uh, okay, so mind. <clears throat> here, here's another thing that um, he was also you know, an anarchist, I guess. <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, but uh, Hodorowski was actually disillusioned uh, by 1960. Felt like Breton had become somewhat conservative in his old age. Mm. So in 1962, he founded the Panic Movement along with Fernando Arabal and Roland Topor. The movement aimed to go beyond the conventional surrealist ideas by embracing absurdism. Its members refused to take themselves seriously while laughing at those <laughs> critics who did. And I, I looked at Panic Movement real quick, and um, it was inspired by and named after the god Pan and influenced mm. by Luis Buñuel and Antonin Artaud's Theater of Cruelty. And well, the group concentrated on chaotic and surreal performance art as a response to surrealism becoming mainstream. The movement's violent theatrical events were designed to be shocking and to release destructive energies in search of peace of be and beauty. One four-hour performance known as Sacramental Melodrama was staged in May 1965 at the Paris Festival of Free Expression. The, quote, happening starred Hodorowski dressed in motorcyclist leather and featured mm -hmm. him slitting the throats of two geese, taping two snakes to his chest while having himself stripped and whipped. Other scenes included, quote, two naked snakes. women covered in honey, a crucified chicken, the staged murder of a rabbi, a giant vagina, the throwing of live turtles into the audience, and canned apricots. Cool. Um, <sighs> okay, yeah, I mean, well, that I, sounds a little bit... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, can, like, uh, I hope, you know, I'm not going to make another uh, Greek mistake like I did with Oikos, but... Um, Pan, I think, you know, panic is like a, a inherent reference to pan, like panicos. I think that pan is kind of like has always been associated with the idea of panic, you know. But I yeah, mean, I think it has. Maybe but they I, were more I didn't know that it, it was. But, yeah. It sounds like they were consciously yes, like, yes. inspired by. Yeah, I mean, pan just and doing Arto himself was like uh, interesting, sus lord. I would be interested to do a whole episode about Arto because, like, t yeah, he's also like a weird, like, anyway, but. Yeah, the theater of cruelty, which you definitely can see some some of that. Um, yeah, bleed into uh, Hodorowsky's early movies. That was all movies. about, you know. He, I think, Arto even said, you know, I call it the theater of cruelty, but you can also call it the theater of life or the theater of truth. You know, he was all about like reclaiming the sacred in the theater, but of course, like the sacred is completely different from God. Like he hates the God or the divine. God would always steal his, his words from him. Although Artaud had a lot of different periods of like converting to Catholicism and then being like, I hate this, etc. <laughs> so he was kind of like all over the place, you know. Uh, he was he had been committed to like mental institutions. He had gone into like sort of uh, monasteries, I think at one point. But, you know, yeah, uh, his theater of cruelty was like very much about like kind of reclaiming, you know, he, in his the theater and his double, he wrote all about like the Balinese theater and kind of getting back to that ritual idea of the, of the theater. You know, it's he's mm. he's incredibly influential in like the Western avant-garde, but like the sort of the sort of fashy, um, you know, uh, aspects of Artaud are like not really deeply considered in a lot of cases like there's a book uh, Artaud and his double I think uh, which is kind of a play on the name of the book the theater and its double um, I forget the author of the book but it kind of goes into the like the sort of uh, you know uh, uh, problematic or like you know 
uh, more nuanced aspects of like some of his esoteric ideas, like in contrast to the sort of uh, more one-dimensional picture of him as this like heroic avant-garde sort of innovator, you know. Mm. Um, yeah, it's uh, Arto and His Doubles um, by uh, Kimberly Janarone. So, yeah. Interesting. It's, uh, something to think. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, so that's kind of the scene he was involved in in Mexico. But then, I guess, uh, in... Oh, he made his first film, Fondo Elise, which is actually, I think, maybe one of the only ones I didn't watch. But I've seen clips of it. It was in black and white. And it's, you know, it's the first kind of, like, stab at what Hodorowski would kind of end up doing, which is, like, weaving this very surrealist kind of bizarre imagery, some of it very shocking and kind of violent or sexual and other and with a kind of like mystical framework. I guess it instigated a riot at the 1968 Acapulco Film Festival amongst those objecting to the film's content and it was subsequently banned in Mexico. <clears throat> and so af- around that time in Mexico City, Hodorowski encountered Ijo Takada, a Zen Buddhist monk who had studied at the Horyuji and Shofukuji monasteries in Japan before traveling to Mexico via the United States in 1967 to spread Zen. Hodorowski became a disciple of Takata and offered his own house to be burnt, sorry, not burnt, um, to be turned into a Zendo. Subsequently, Takata attracted other disciples around him who spent their time in meditation and the study of koans. Eventually, Takata instructed Hodorowski that he had to learn more about his feminine side, so he went and befriended the English surrealist Leonora Carrington, who had recently moved to Mexico. I'm, uh, I'm not sure what, uh, what her deal is, but yeah, he got very into this Zen Buddhist monk in the late 60s mm-hmm. and kind of like who declared that yeah. he was like his guru, basically. And I guess, you know, the, this guy also... Okay, this is interesting. Um, so Takata... Uh, I found an academic article, Mexico City Koans and the Zen Buddhist Master, Alejandro Hodorowsky, Ijo uh, Takata, and the Fundamental Lesson of the Death of the Intellect from 2018. It does mention here that the monk's influence would not end with Hodorowsky as the artist, oh, I'm sorry, it says Hodorowsky himself would one day become teacher and muse to many other popular artists, including Marcel Marceau, John Lennon, Marilyn Manson, Kanye West, and many others. I thought I thought it was going to say this monk was like tutoring Marilyn Manson. <laughs> so I was like, that's <laughs> right, really fucking okay. sus. It's still um, sus to like, I don't know, be the spiritual mentor of like Marilyn Manson. Yes. I guess, you know, the guy needs <laughs> yeah. spiritual help, obviously. He um, does, yeah. Can't hold but, it against him yeah. for hanging out with Kanye and like reading his tarot, but... Anyways, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, there's not like a ton of information about Takata kind of online. He died. He lived in Mexico, I think, the rest of his life and died in 1997. But then that leads up to basically the first film that blows up and gets Hodorowski noticed in a big way, especially in the United States. And that's El Topo, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't watch this for the first time. Did you mm-hmm. were you watching it for the first time? I was, yeah. Okay. I saw The Holy Mountain, like, years ago. You know, I dated, uh, like, a film major, like, back in undergrad, and she, like, wanted to go see The Holy Mountain. Like, we went, I think, at midnight, you know, because El Topo was, like, the first, like, you know, midnight movie, they say. You know, it he was. started the sort of midnight movie. S- similar right? to Kenneth Anger yeah, once sim- again, Yeah, I was right? going to say, you know, yeah, yeah. another uh, crossover there. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, it was kind of late, but I remember, you know, I she, like, fell asleep, you know, she had wanted to go, but, like, you know, I, I did appreciate The Holy mountain you know i thought it was it was interesting but you know i was stricken then by like how kind of like neat it was and how like workmanlike it was uh but mm-hmm. i mean we can talk about that when we get to the, the holy mountain but yeah, yeah uh you know that was my main 
experience with Hodorowsky okay. So prior. we both, we, I guess we yeah. both watched them backwards because I watched The Holy Mountain first and then a few yeah. weeks later I watched El Topo and mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting. I mean, you definitely see a continuity between them and like a growth, I think, yeah. in terms of like the the command of the style and like also the budget which we yeah, will the get budget, into right. um and stuff but but El Topo is still a pretty impressive movie for, yeah to come out in 1970 it's definitely not as janky as like you would think like you know they talk people talk about how like you know it was made on such a shoestring budget compared to the Holy Mountain you know like that's kind of what you hear about it that it was this sort of you know slap together movie um but no it still was you know it's kind of a in the sort of spaghetti western idiom so it kind of has that sense about it but it has these touches that that basically feel very like 1960s counterculture it's been called you know basically an acid western yeah no yeah just like like smeared and like you know psychedelic paint basically yeah um mm -hmm. yeah it's not like uh exactly it's not just a, a matter of like occasional little like psychedelic touches like the whole movie is like you know, a fever dream. Like it doesn't really like it definitely it's is got, yeah, not in the world of like magical realism. It's definitely in the world of just like pure symbolic association. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There, there's strange things in it, like scenes where there's just like a lion hanging out in the background. You know what I mean? Like yeah. just just like like bizarre kind of imagery. Yeah. And, or like we're just going to like, you know, like rape a chicken or like have a million goats. Yeah, exactly. Like, that type of thing or the thing that really struck me at the end like the like the illuminati frontier town Mm -hmm. basically yeah um but uh, you know but maybe before we get to that so like just to 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 set up like what is the uh sort of ostensible story here it like most movies that hodorowsky makes he stars in it and also puts his children in it so it's about a gunslinger like a, a wandering mexican bandit gunslinger named el topo who's like this bearded uh kind of mystical man in all black with a big beard played by hodorowsky who is you first meet him in the beginning riding around in the desert on a horse with a little boy who's like naked yeah who's actually hodorowsky's son Brontus. right uh, you're really wanting this kid to like someone to put some clothes in this kid for like the whole part yeah. of the movie it's very <laughs> just, just like yeah it's like he doesn't right. need to be naked but i guess you just that that's that's uh, the flex just and, like uh okay. you know that woman needed to be raped in order for the scene to work the kid <sighs> needed to be naked uh yeah sure. i mean there's also some weird kind of disturbing flourishes uh Besides, I mean, the beginning, he he almost does, I think what he later described as like kind of an act of psycho magic where mm-hmm. he gets off the horse and I think um, he tells the little boy like something, I don't know, it's something like you're, you're eight years old now, like bury your mother's, yeah. bury your mother's possessions and like say a prayer. You are a man now or something like that. Mm-hmm, right. And so the little kid buries this like picture and I think like a little toy or something and then they hop on the horse and ride off. And then he sort of gets into a couple sort of like classic Western confrontations with like bad dudes and mm-hmm. like totally kills them all. The first <laughs> one that is kind of interesting, uh, it's pretty entertaining, 
is he comes across this like colonel, kind of like a Spanish don yeah. that runs one of like the the missions there. Yeah, he's like pulled up in a monastery. Yeah, he's like massacred a whole town, right? Uh, yeah, like, he mass- yeah, he comes and finds a whole town like, a whole massacred. Town killed and yeah, to there's a lot of blood, it. a lot of death uh, in El Topo. And so he, he finds out that it's like the colonel at the mission uh, is the guy who did this. And he's got a whole gang of like sicko goons that yeah, just they like, like uh, you know, yeah. are torturing the Dominicans there and like, you know, uh, riding them around and, and spanking them. Yeah, subjecting you know? them to kind of like humiliating sex rituals, yeah. like the, mm-hmm. the Franciscan monks, basically. And yeah. uh, but but it's kind of filmed almost in a way at first as if the monks are kind of into it a little bit. Kind of. Well, there's like, you know, you know, very, uh, I'm sure very shocking at the time, like kind of like gay dance sequence yeah. where they, you know, kind of kiss or something. It's unclear. Yeah. Again, sort of. It's the, kind of like fun and romantic and like yeah. subversive and stuff. And uh, and yeah, but then also there's like an undercurrent of like they're being held hostage and like forced and all these things. And then there's like a beautiful woman, the aforementioned actress yeah. that the rape controversy Laura, was around yeah. who was like kind of the kept woman of this colonel mm-hmm. and yeah. basically you know uh uh el topo shows up he sort of challenges the colonel to like a duel and then sort of like totally like humiliates him and then something that pops up in so many of his fucking movies he shoots the colonel's dick off yeah and then the colonel immediately in like a fit of despair you know is like no anything but that and he immediately just like uh shoots himself in the head with a shotgun <laughs> like like afterwards and he's dead okay. so the then mystical uh, is the most yeah no it's really like a, there's there's multiple times in it's also in santa sangre and it was going to be to some extent in dune as well that's like not in the novel at all but he is really fixated on like castration like his characters well, getting male characters getting castrated and and well, a couple like times a they kill themselves of right like after Jungian kind of or new age mysticism like the symbolism i mean as he even mentioned in sort of the rape description like the symbolism of the phallus like the power of the phallic icon that's like really important uh i think as like you know uh as a, as a symbol you know that's one of the ur symbols when you're so uh one of the most potent images that there is is the phallus you know especially when you're talking about like clowning and things like that you know in yeah. the phallic clowns being like one of the sort of first forms of uh miming and theater in that way so uh that maybe encourages that that focus on on dick in addition to just being like a weird dude um yeah so, yeah definitely yeah um, i mean it's like, like a really dark commedia dell'arte kind of a uh, shit going on there yeah and mm-hmm. also like the the sort of like the the sinister laughter of gangs is something that i noticed that pops yeah. up uh, i really <laughs> noticed in the, like yeah, like the like the desperados that ride around him in the beginning yeah. they're just like yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. and they're just, just like, laughing yeah. at like nothing like but yeah. it's like it the more they laugh the more terrifying it gets because <laughs> yeah, they're just horrible. like <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly like, <laughs> they're just yeah. like insane and yeah. they're all just like rape crazy like maniacs and mm-hmm. you know he i believe he kills all of them and then takes off uh, the woman wants to go with him so he rides off into the sunset with her and they they swim around in like a like a spring and then they go but then they end up in the desert very abruptly and they're like freaking out and like dying of thirst and there's like a very strange like rape sequence in the desert which is 
what that whole controversy was about, mm-hmm. where there's like a, a phallic column of stone that starts spurting up water out of it. Like, you know, it, it's like, uh, yeah. And so they, they have this kind of, um, and they're kind of doing like a magic circle thing. I think mm-hmm. when, because doesn't he kind of, the, the El Tobo kind of snaps when they're sitting in like this sort of circle in the desert to like, I don't know, pray for water or something. And he kind of like loses it and he uh, assaults her, whatever. But then they're like kind of connected after that. And, but, th- but then, you know, at first it's kind of like this guy is like a righteous Avenger kind of cowboy character. Yeah. But then the woman kind of like it flips around and the woman says like there are four, if you want to have me, there are four like enlightened gunslingers out there in this, you know, this area and you have to kill all of them right to like win my love and so el topo i guess is sort of like hypnotized you know he mm-hmm. kind of uh you know he put her on a pedestal so to speak and he decides yeah i'm gonna go do this he also gives away the boy to like franciscan monks i forgot to mention that so the boy yeah, just kind he, of like doesn't show right. up again until what like the end of the movie like he's yeah well he comes out of the back picture. like yeah he comes back yeah he uh right um but yeah, which again, that, up, yeah, you know? uh, yeah, uh, but kind yeah. of interesting that he leaves him with all like the the kind of the 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 licentious monks or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. It you know maybe hey maybe they were just victimized. But anyways, so he then he goes on kind of almost like this samurai movie kind of quest to like have a showdown with like these different enlightened gunslingers who all have certain kind of like mystical abilities, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They all have kind of like uh, city type powers, uh, sort of, and different kind of like philosophies. Yeah. Yeah. The first guy is like a sort of like this like non-binary kind of uh, sort of Indian guy who is like bullets just like pass right through me. Right. Like I don't yeah. I don't need to eat food anymore. Like he he's like a breathitarian. And, yeah. Um, he doesn't need to see. You know. He. Uh, right. He like he just let bullets just pass right through him. Right. Um. You know, exactly uh, and so yeah. i guess they all, each gun master kind of represents like a different type of religion or philosophy yeah and i had they, heard that but i was not like quite clear like what religion or philosophy each one represented like they kind of yeah it seemed to blend together at a that's true it, yeah. they, they all seem kind of mystically enlightened in some particular way yeah. but it's almost more on the level he would hate uh for me to say this, but it's almost like they have a specific like mystical superpower, like yeah. kind of superhero. I mean, <laughs> right. but no, it's it, it's not as a uh, it's not as like comic booky as that. But mm-hmm. they all have kind of you know something that makes them like kind of more enlightened. And but he does manage to kill all of them. And then I think, but then when he gets to like the the last gunfighter, that one kind of like devastates him, right? Mm-hmm. yeah like he feels absolutely like he's given himself over to evil because he's killed all of these guys that were like more more enlightened more holy than him and that right. he's been forced to almost like betray his own like like spiritual mandate to be like you know the bringer of justice el topo yeah i mean i kind of interpreted that like the last gunfighter like kind of defeated him like you know with the with the butterfly net kind of you know oh the butterfly net watch out oh <laughs> shit the butterfly uh, net. you know yeah i'm just trying to i'm looking up his dialogue right now uh the last gunfighter yeah he's like very much like a wandering ascetic he has like you know he's like a bedraggled like kind of fakir uh guy you know like really emaciated and he's like 
Uh, want to duel with me? How will I do that? I have no gun. I bartered the pistol for a butterfly net. I must fight you with my hands. Fight, fight, fight. See, <laughs> my net is more powerful than your bullets. If you shoot again, I'll reflect the bullet directly into your heart. How can you win if I don't duel? I have nothing. Even with a trap, you couldn't have taken anything from me. I don't care about my life. Now I'll show you. You lost. And a lot of them, like, kind of say that. Like, you're dead already. Like, you know, I don't care about my life. That's how, like, you know. Uh, the dead rabbit guy is, like, a little bit different. But anyway, like, uh, yeah. You know, and also he, he defeats like, you know, all of them not through, like, superior skill. Yeah, but through, draw. like, accidents yeah, like, or, like, yeah, luck or mm. trickery or something like that. Like, he, yeah. he defeats them all in, like, an underhanded kind of way. Yeah, but I kind of felt like the last guy, like, you know, when he said the bullet will, like, go back into your heart, like, that sort of was, like, the beginning of, like, his spiritual, like, death and, and rebirth almost, you know, like, uh, through, like, through killing that guy, like, he became transformed and, like, you know, his, like, El Topo-ness was, like, defeated and, and transmuted in some way, like, by that guy, last guy. The last, because uh, the last guy outsmarts him by killing himself before El Topo can kill him. Yeah. And so he becomes ridden with guilt. He destroys his own gun. And also at some point along this quest, it's like not explained, but this kind of woman that wears all black that has like a male voice kind of teams up with El Topo and uh, Mara, the, mm -hmm. you know, his, his, the woman he saved. Mm -hmm. And, but then there's like almost like a lesbian kind of romance, like developing between them or like the, the black clad woman wants Mara. And so after they kill all the gunfighters, the woman in black shoots El Topo in, I guess, like a stigmata kind of pattern and then rides off with Mara. Right, yeah. And El Topo's like kind of a Christ figure, sort of. Uh, well, yeah, then it gets very odd because then he gets taken to like a, a subterranean society um, mm -hmm, right, of yeah. dwarfs and mutants. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 yeah. And he, yeah, he's like, uh, he then that's where you see the famous like photo of him with like crazy red hair looking like just like a madman. Um mm -hmm you know, monk or something. And so he's down there with these kind of uh, dwarfs and mutants who, who are, have kind of genetic mutations. They, the one, the woman who kind of tends to him says, because like we practice so much incest and that's also a theme that pops up in like almost every Hodorowsky movie incest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the vibe is always and there. Also, like, it, it pops you know, up at some place or another. Deformity. Yes. Sure. And defo Oh yeah. That's the thing. Like every single movie has either people with like dwarfism or missing limbs or like amputees. Um, sometimes like down people with down syndrome. He's like very, um, he's very into that for, like yeah well i haven't a, been able again, to see like, him directly address like why that specifically that well, but he kind of addresses you know, it in his autobiographical like, there movies. is sort of a sacred quality to uh dwarfs and uh you know people with deformities like in the same way that there's like a sort of sacred quality to people who are sort of mad or madness mm, interesting. there's a sacred quality yeah. like you know the uh dwarfs you know so like pharaohs would like collect dwarfs you know uh and of course, there's also like a, an aspect of that, like in sort of comic or clowning traditions, you know? So, yeah. That's like, true. Uh, and circus, kind of like, like circus stuff. Powers. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. there's literally like a, like I think like a bearded lady in um, Santa Sangre yeah. and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, maybe that's why. But anyways, so these, these people underground start worshiping him as a godlike figure as he's meditating on the Gunmasters for lessons. And I guess this, uh, this like underground cave society has been blocked in and they are too short to like climb out the only exit because of like their deformities. And, um, and so then 
El Topo kind of, I guess, I don't know, remembers who he is and decides he's going to help these outcasts like break free. So he's going to go to the surface with his uh, his girl, who's like kind of his lover now. Also, also, mm. he's he's he has a lot of like characters of like him being in like romantic or sexual relationships with um like little people or dwarves or whatever. And so he's able to escape. And this is where the most kind of interesting and horrifying and fascinating and potentially sus like part of the the finale of the movie happens where they get to the aforementioned like Illuminati murder cult town. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And so he goes to the town and they they all worship a depraved murder cult, basically, that has the symbol of like Uh, the the eye of providence in a triangle. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's like banners like everywhere of just like this one eye symbol and people just like they're rounding up like local peasants and stuff and just like shooting them for fun. And huge Mm -hmm. crowds are just like, yeah, like kill them, like death. And and basically, uh, El Topo goes into town, kind of dressed up almost like a Buddhist monk, and he starts doing like magic tricks for them, mm-hmm. and and like just like fun like clown stuff for them, and all these depraved cultists like love it, and they start giving <laughs> him money. So his idea is that like he and like his helper are just gonna do like magic tricks and like little things like that. And, like, collect money by, like, busking, basically. And eventually he'll buy enough, like, dynamite to, like, or enough, I don't know. so Yeah, enough dynamite or whatever to, like, blow open the hole and, like, rescue all the outcasts and, like, bring them to the surface. And so then there's a character, I guess, called, oh, yeah, the character, the boy, grows up, right? Mm-hmm. He comes into town, like, as a priest. and the Yeah, he's ca- supposed like, to be, like, the new priest of the town right um, yeah oh yeah and there's an older and, priest but, there and right. but the, but their, their religion has been perverted into this like illuminati cult so right. there's like a really wild scene in the church where the original priest who's there pulls out a revolver and starts talking about like per, you know miracles basically and he puts a bullet in the gun and spins it and then like plays russian roulette Starts playing Russian roulette with it. Mm-hmm. And then he starts passing around like, who else believes in a miracle? And like everyone's <laughs> like, me, me, let me oh, do it. Gosh. And all these people start basically like playing Russian roulette with this gun. And every time it clicks, everyone's like, miracle. <laughs> like everyone's uh. just like really excited. But then uh, Hiho, the grown-up son of El Topo, who's like the other kind of like the other priest there, I think he tells everybody to stop. And the and people kind of confront him, like, what? Like, don't you believe? And so he takes the gun and then he empties out the bullet. At the, the original priest, like, whispers to him. He's like, don't worry, it's just a blank. Mm-hmm. And so then uh, he ho As we know, not how blanks work. Uh, uh, apparently, yeah. yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Even that kind of hit different um, yeah. in the last month. Like, it's it was even inside of a church, like, where yeah. this... And so he says, yeah, don't worry, it's a blank. And then Hiho uh, opens up the cylinder, drops out the blank, and then grabs a bullet from somebody's, like, bandolier and then puts a real bullet in it and then puts the, you know, puts the gun to his head and clicks it. And then doesn't somebody else grab it at that point? And then they shoot uh, themselves? Oh, yeah. or a little kid or something? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was like that. It ends horribly, of course. Um, yeah, and and then at that point, like the religion, like nobody wants to go to church anymore because like a little kid shot themselves. So then, um, Heho sort of un- unmasks himself and is dressed up like as El Topo in all black, and right. he confronts uh, the OG El Topo and says, like, basically, I've come here to kill you, right? Right. Yeah, because for abandoning him at the monastery. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. And so, and, but then, you know, original El Topo, El Topo Sr. is like, no, 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 don't you understand? Like, I, I've totally, I've turned my back on all my, like, bad behaviors and, like, yeah. all the horrible things. that, And I'm trying to help these people by digging this hole and getting them out from the earth, like, to make it, you know, to, to you know, restore the, you know, my karmic balance or whatever. And he's kind of like, hmm, okay, well, since that's a good thing that you're doing, I will wait to kill you. I'll let you finish that. And then I'll kill you after it's done. So then it becomes kind of like this, almost like this wacky thing where like it's never going to be done. And he keeps digging and he's like, no, 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 just a little more. And he gets very impatient um, and kind of want and is like helping him. But they also, uh, I don't know, they also kind of bond a little bit. It maybe is harder to. And eventually they open up the tunnel, but then he ho is unable to kill his father. He can't do it. Um, so then the outcast comes streaming out into the village, but then immediately the Illuminati cultists just start executing them all. And El Topo watches with horror as like all of his like people are murdered. And then he gets shot, but then he massacres the entire town. And then he sits down like that Buddhist monk in 1963 and douses himself in like oil and then um, sets himself on fire. Yeah. Just like... Uh Fong Wong Duke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and at the end. And then I guess I think also that was, uh, must have been like kind of a partially delivered reference, right? That it was maybe. After that. Yeah. Maybe. Um, I mean, people have looked into a lot of elements of this movie. You know, basically like a lot of people pointed out the kind of vibes were a little bit similar to like the Manson murders, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And I don't know to what extent at the time or just like in retrospect, we've looked at it and been like, oh, my like because it, it didn't it came out. I would I have to assume that most of the movie was shot before the Manson murders, but it came out right after the Manson murders in 1970. Yeah. So it in its depiction of like mass slaughter, like desert cults. Mm-hmm. You know, like a messiah, like a like a hippie messiah going around like murdering everybody, even like the Illuminati cult town mm-hmm. that revels in like murder and, and chaos and all this shit. Uh, you know, like it uh, it definitely hits in um, it taps into something. And yeah, I mean, especially for a Western, it has the feeling of being like very transgressive and kind of like almost making a political statement even though it's really not it's much more of like an esoteric statement (laughs) you know yeah like it's a mystical quest and everything but it could not be seen in something of a of a provocative like political lens and then it became this big movie in the midnight circuit particularly in new york right Mm, yes yeah and it it started fascinating people so i I think it played at the elgin theater in new york yeah and it premiered on december 18th 1970 and ran continuously seven days a week until the end of june 1971 that's pretty crazy so that's for like seven months it ran seven days a week i don't think there's any movie that would that would happen like big or small nowadays right um yeah, I mean, I can't really Truly imagine. Yeah, definitely a different time. Uh, well, now, like, they don't show any movies except for Marvel movies. Uh, 
and like you know a few maybe like other things but yeah it's hard to imagine something like a like a you know an avant-garde independent film like taking off like that i mean i guess really things like the room would be like the closest thing i can think of like in recent memory true maybe maybe there's some horror movies in the 70s like i don't know like texas chainsaw massacre or something that kind of uh, acquired that status of, or like i don't know rocky horror picture show maybe like that yeah. a, a acquired like a real cult audience but this is also like a high art a uh, pretty good looking yeah you know, i mean i could interesting see movie. like something it wasn't like so bad it's good yeah it exactly wild you could like imagine it but yeah exactly there's i mean it's very singular film like he's he's a very singular filmmaker so yeah it's hard to really imagine something similar happening but yeah i mean like so bad it's good type stuff i feel like has been the version of that kind of like uh obscure film being catapulted to success that we've seen in recent years uh, more so than anything yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. You got a shock, I guess. I guess that yeah. seemed to be uh, really on his mind at the time. But then that um, that leads to the kind of really big break that changes a lot for him because it gets discovered by John Lennon. Right. John Lennon goes to see it, and he's like, he loves it. John Lennon is like absolutely obsessed with this movie, and he starts talking to his manager, Alan Klein. The, uh, the guy who ran like Abco Records and like came in after, I think it was Brian Epstein, the original Beatles manager, uh, died like a drug overdose mm-hmm. at like age 32. Might, might have been sus, but uh, <laughs> Alan Klein came in and basically uh, arranged for it to be like played more often and distributed and stuff. And basically, you know, they, they eventually want to bankroll Hodorowski's next movie. Seventy-three's, the Holy Mountain, and yes. uh, just before we get into the Holy Mountain, I just okay. wanted to mention this quote I found from uh, Hodorowski uh, that I guess he gave to Vulture about the movie uh, about El Topo, the previous film that uh, we were talking about. Uh, he was talking about casting his son in the movie, and apparently. He really, like, at the beginning when he buries his toy and his mother's picture, his son, like, really had to bury, like, his teddy bear, and he was, like, devastated by it. Wow. And, but not only that, like, this quote is uh, very odd. The interviewer asked, anyway, your father uh, is played in the film, you know, talking about a different movie, was played by your real-life son, Brontus. 
Brontus was also in El Topo. I know you felt guilty about his involvement in that earlier film. After asking him to bury his own teddy bear, you apologized to him and made him dig up his teddy bear, saying, now you can be a child. Do you think that what you asked of Brontus was too much to ask of a child? Uh, and he said, yes, yes. A person is not the same in his life at all times. Your consciousness is developing all the time. When I started making El Topo, I was one person. When I finished that picture, I was another person. And when I made El Topo, I was asking uh, Brontus to kill some rabbits. Just because at the time I said to myself, we should give everything to art. So when I finished the picture, I became more human and asked forgiveness for my child. I'd never kill an animal. I became conscious. If you don't make errors, how can you be conscious? So I guess when that uh, third <laughs> gunmaster has like all those dead rabbits around him, I guess he really killed all those rabbits. Um, made his son, made his little son kill, kill all those rabbits. Yeah. And I was oh, like, yeah, well, I, I, I never was gonna... If you don't massacre a bunch of rabbits, like you'll never know, like not to senselessly kill a bunch of rabbits for a shot. <laughs> like uh, I don't think a that's necessarily true. Also, yeah. like one thing I forgot to mention is, in addition to the character being the little boy being naked, uh, he at various times, like when they capture bad guys, El Topo hands his revolver to the little boy and like guides him almost honestly like maybe it's because of the popping aesthetic but it like reminded me of like an isis khalifa cub video like it, mm -hmm. it's horrible but it felt like that like all right like come on like shoot him in the head now yeah. you know and i don't know it's like these are the heroes of the movie <laughs> he's like to like teaching his eight-year-old how to like execute somebody so, yeah, and yeah. that would come up again with Hodorowsky's Dune, where he cast his same son, Brontus, as Paul, the character played by Timothy Chalamet, but mm -hmm. he subjected him to, like, two years of, like, intensive seven-day-a-week martial arts training and, like, all kinds of stuff that sounds pretty, like, not, maybe not the best parenting practice in retrospect, um, which... You know. Yeah, it seems like he had, it's weird, because it seems like he had issues with his own parents, but it doesn't seem exactly. like he learned from his negative experience with his own parents. Um, That's what's interesting about his later autobiographical films, is that the stories that are told about what he did to his son acting in his movies, like, seem so similar to how his father, Jaime, the Stalinist, would mm -hmm. consistently, like, challenge and kind of, like, berate his son and, like, force him to do things to toughen him up, except... In Hodorowsky's sense, it's like, I'm toughing you up to be the ultimate artist. You know what I mean? Like, he, he zagged in a totally different direction in terms of what he wanted to instill in his son. But he still approached it in the same way. Like, very kind of domineering and, like, this is what you're going to do. And, like, anything less than total commitment means, like, you'll fail. Like, you need to be strong and all that stuff. So, definitely... Um, yeah, working through some parental issues a little bit. <laughs> this uh, is also works. a strange quote. Uh, the interviewer asks, does the process of making your art, whether it's your comics, your films, your writing on tarology, or your practice of healing and psychomagic, require you to abandon your conscience? Do you have to completely give yourself over to your art, to the demands of what the work needs? And he replies, I realize that I'm not just a person who thinks, but a person who feels. I have desires, sexual desires, and creative desires. Weird way to go with that, but okay. These have nothing to do with thinking. My body has needs to be healthy, to have good air, to have good water, good space. My body wants things, normal things. Sexually, I am getting old. My desire is changing. I don't want to just love my family. I want to love all of humanity. I say proudly, I'm Jewish, but the Palestinians are people too. 
I want to uh, know why they're fighting. Uh, uh, mm. It's a war of idiots against idiots. <laughs> and I see big corporations destroying the planet to get more money. It's not normal. Also, every day I think I'll die. What does it mean to die? What does it mean to despair about this? Many people think about God when they think about death. But what is God? The Arabs have a God, the Jews have another, the Catholics have another, and they're all fighting to maintain that they worship the one real God. Idiots. Religion is idiocy. I'm a conscious person, but I was also born in that world. I made errors, but step by step I'm trying to amend those errors. El Topo was very intellectual, and Dance of Reality is very emotional. Yeah, I find it very odd that he like immediately launched into talking about his sexual desires when he asked when the interviewer asked him if he had to leave his conscience aside. And then also kind of said yeah. that the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict is over religion and, like, who worships the one true God, which is, like, idiots you know, if idiots. anything, extremely I mean, ancillary uh, I mean, in that. That's a very, uh, like, anarchist-y artist, like, poetic uh, yeah. anarchist kind of take both on it. Both sides like, suck. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is kind of, he, he is in, into both sides sucking uh, a lot. So, awesome. okay. yeah. But, well, but you know we are we are talking now about the movie of his that maybe has the 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 strongest political overtones and themes in it to mm. uh, admittedly in a very surrealistic context but yeah the holy mountain came out in 1973 but it was it it came about because like we said John Lennon uh you know discovered El Topo when it was playing in New York and he directed uh his manager at the time Alan Klein to check it out and I guess Lennon was so enthusiastic about it that Alan Klein bought the rights to the film and then put it out in like a wider American release and then after that which I guess was you know a modest hit uh, on the Midnight Circuit, and after that, he committed to basically funding, along with uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono, his next project, which would be The Holy Mountain. And um, this guy, just to say, like, this is where, you know, he comes up against, this is kind of like some Laurel Canyon type of stuff. I mean, we talked about in our Eagles episode, like Alan Klein, I'm pretty convinced that, I mean, if you pull up like a picture of him, Mm-hmm. It, it seems like he, the character in Phantom of the Paradise, remember, like not yeah. not Swan, but like his kind of a his minion manager, like the very oh, rotund the fellow. Guy, who, yeah, the, who got killed in the shower scene. Uh, not in the no. shower scene. The guy who gets the guy who dresses up as like the Pope at the end and gets oh, like, shot. Oh, right. Head. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All yeah. Right. yeah. Mm-hmm. And the guy who's like in the beginning. There's that like like facing the camera kind of long take of like i want you to break her and it's like mm. in time she's already over you know like that that dude mm-hmm. um who is kind of like yeah sh- like swan's kind of like uh, evil like sleazy henchman i'm pretty sure that that was like a parody of alan klein more than anybody because mm-hmm. he kind of fits the bill like physically speaking and he had a very fearsome reputation for being the manager of the Beatles and also the Rolling Stones. And before that, a lot of like rock and roll and like rockabilly artists like uh, Sam Cooke, um, which uh, who I believe died under slightly mysterious circumstances that the family thinks might have been more like uh, Alan Klein having him whacked. But yeah, so Alan Klein kind of took over managing the Beatles after their original. Uh, manager Brian Epstein died of a drug overdose at the age of 32 in like the late 60s and I think um 
I think that Hey Jude was the first like Beatles hit that he put out. And then after the Beatles broke up, uh, he continued, I think uh, he definitely continued managing John Lennon and he may have also produced uh, George Harrison as well. Also, interestingly, like, you know, we talked about that, like, Meyer Lansky company that bought out Warner Brothers in, like, the early 70s. Mm -hmm. Um, In February 1967, uh, with an eye towards producing films and finding a way to invest his client's money, Alan Klein attempted to buy uh, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, MGM, but his hopes Mm -hmm. were blunted when Edgar Bronfman Sr., heir to the Seagram fortune, instead took control of the firm. Now, I had actually, I wasn't, like, aware that Edgar Bronfman Sr. took over MGM in the late 60s. He's also somebody going all the, like, way down to, like, Edgar Bronfman Jr. and, like, various, like, criminal kind of activities. I think sometimes, like, Iran-Contra adjacent, sometimes Epstein adjacent. Definitely Nexium adjacent because, mm-hmm. like, the descendants of Edgar Bronfman were, like, basically funding the Nexium cult and all that shit. So, yeah, like, really seems like a full-court press from, like, the mafia, like, getting into the... Trying to get into... They were all fighting over who got to take over these studios in the 60s and stuff. And uh, and so, yeah, so he's the one that kind of put on Hodorowski to some extent and put up the money for this next movie. So just interesting that, like, they all mm-hmm. were so excited about, like, this occult filmmaker and stuff. And... Um, I mean, legitimately, he, he's a really competent visual stylist and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, so the movie itself, The Holy Mountain, it's kind of like a, I don't know, how would you describe it? Because it's not exactly a Western. It's, no, it's not a Western. It's kind I yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a uh, sort of, it's a very like 60s New Age allegory, I would say. Uh, like a 60s new age like occult allegory uh in and in a very like traditional way i mean the holy mountain like the ascent like the spiritual ascent like very classic theme uh as a movie yeah i mean that's like kind of what i would say it's like a surrealistic uh mystical allegory maybe uh yeah yeah. kind of a a quest um yeah definitely Definitely. Once again, Hodorowski plays the kind of main character who's, I think, just known as like the, the fool. alchemist, right? Or the or... alchemist. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, but he represents the fool. He's also referred to as the thief as well. Oh, the thief um, is uh, the other guy, right? The thief is the fool, but Hodorowski is the alchemist uh, who's like his teacher, you know, like. Um, Kind oh, of, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, that's a different guy. Uh, and and the fool is like based on the fool tarot card, which like Hodorowski is like extremely into the tarot. Yeah. Maybe we'll touch on that later. But uh, even as far back as these early films, he was very uh, interested in utilizing like tarot card imagery. Yeah. Uh, astrological and, kind right. of stuff. All the characters like, also have like an astrological counterpart, I believe. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I mean the like visually this movie is like very wild and crazy and it's also mixed in with like some of these kind of political social themes that I feel like they're more front and center here than they are maybe in El Topo or Santa Sangre I mean they're always kind of like like basically the backdrop of Latin America at this time in South America because you know we've talked about the the era that like you know Che Guevara was running around in which is 
just a few years before this, when he died, and the, all the right-wing military dictatorships in Latin America, once again, there's kind of a weird synchronicity here where this movie came out like right before uh, it premiered at Cannes in May 1973, and the coup against Allende in Hodorowsky's native Chile didn't happen until 9-11, 1973 right mm-hmm. yeah. but it feels watching this movie like i had to go back and check kind of like the manson thing where like it definitely had to be filmed before the manson murders but then it came out right after or right around the time the manson murders happened and everyone's like whoa this is like this feels like it's commenting on it. i'm not saying he's like psychic and like can intuit or you know somebody gave him a memo of like mm. what's gonna happen soon i mean this kind of repression was happening all over latin yeah. america going mm. into it so it's not like psychic to have like a sense you of, didn't have to be no. psychic but the fact that or he is chilean uh yeah. definitely like it hits a little different watching it after pinochet takes over because the images of they're very reminiscent of kind of the illuminati murder cult town in el topo in the sense of like there are these like cutaway kind of random moments like particularly near the beginning of like like fascist troops in sort of like an unnamed like you know latin american city like lining up protesters or dissidents or whatever and like gunning them down and then all these bourgeois these all these bourgeois people all dressed up kind of like in eisenstein's um october when Mm -hmm. there's like that montage of like them machine gunning down all the workers and it just cuts to like a woman like twisting her parasol and like a man with a monocle just being like (laughs) yeah you know it's like kind of like once again the sinister laughter of the crowd Mm -hmm. like almost this evil clownish like all these people dressed up just like 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 applauding like they're at like a you know a croquet match or something and then one of the women starts like 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 pushes a soldier against the wall and like pulls down his pants and starts having sex with them in front of everybody. Yeah. Like it's very profane and like evil. Weird. Yeah. Like there's also that weird like thing where there's like a dude who like kind of pays for his wife to be raped. Like, uh, I think even before this, they sort of show up the, the sort of soldiers show up. Right. Uh, Oh, I think there is a kind of cuckolding thing going on yeah there's some like there's yeah there's definitely some weird like sexual shit in this too especially at the beginning yeah so it so like there's these moments in it that feel very like pinochet very operation condor and then at one point there's a bunch of soldiers marching in formation down the street with like poles that have crucified skinned dogs on on them like they're marching with like the banner their banners are basically a bunch of crucified dogs and it looks real right it could be uh, i mean yeah. Peta must not be a fan of hodorowsky probably not yeah i mean yeah like uh I, I mean a lot of bad things happen to animals like in the first like 20 minutes of this movie there's also a scene where uh it, it's almost like an attraction in the town where the conquest of like uh, Central America, uh, the conquest of Latin America by the conquistadors is reenacted in a sort of play, yeah. but the like Aztecs are played by toads and frogs, right. and the Spanish are played by lizards and like mm-hmm. iguanas. Chameleons, and then at the end, right. yeah, and chameleons and stuff. And at the end, at the culmination of it, they all get like bombed and explode, or at least the the frogs do. Then they get like actually blown up in this kind of like model little Aztec city with like temples and stuff. And like, there's like an Aztec frog King with like a huge headdress and stuff. It's like very odd, but it, but it's also kind of like 
talking about it's like commenting on like imperialism in and colonization you know colonialism in latin america so it feels almost like the most kind of lefty kind of oriented uh movie of his in terms of like showing you the horrors and you know that are kind of going on albeit in a kind of symbolic level and as you get later well before we go later so we have like this character who wakes up at the beginning of the movie and he has like flies all over his face and he has the uh doesn't he have a tarot card on him of the fool um yeah he does and he looks like jesus christ Right, yeah, and that's actually becomes a plot point in the movie because he's kind of like at one point he's sort of used by like this group of people uh, as to he make gets a kidnapped. cast of Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's actually kind of a funny scene where he like wakes up and then starts walking through this warehouse that is just full of like plaster recreations of himself like on the cross and then yeah. he's like rolling around in them like like no <laughs> like yeah. like he's uh like the, you know the commodification of like you know a holy figure kind of thing you know it's like okay fair enough like yeah I don't that's, feel like that's of, right. that's commenting yeah. on like the corruption religion has of, become a business yeah exactly yeah religion uh, has become a business you know uh, of course it, you know yeah <laughs> <That's> <laughs> i right. mean i can't yeah. really disagree with that and it's uh, kind of entertaining yeah, no, and I mean, stuff understandable yeah so then <clears throat> so, so then, yeah, he does something weird. He gets an argument with a priest and eats the face off his wax statue and sends it skyward with balloons, symbolically eating the body of Christ and offering himself up to heaven. And then there's like a huge tower that appears where a large hook with a bag of gold has been sent down in exchange for food or whatever. Yeah. So he climbs up this tower. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, also, oh yeah, by the way, like the very first opening of this is like literally like an occult ritual. I mean, it's worth saying, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, right? Like the opening mm-hmm. shot is like this, this like dark beard, almost like this ginly like dark sorcerer with like a big brimmed hat and yeah, like a I mask. Yeah, I think that is supposed to be the alchemist. Uh, okay, yeah, that's that probably him. Gin because... Uh, I remember uh, Hodorowski saying, you know, he hides his face like Muhammad. You know, he is an essential being without Ooh, an ego, you know. Yeah, apparently what he's doing is like a Japanese tea ceremony. I see. Yeah, with some naked women and, yeah, the you know, it's like yeah. it's very 70s. And yeah. uh, but with like, I think, a checker patterned kind of it's almost like in an old bathhouse. You remember that like Ottoman bathhouse we yeah. went to once in Budapest? Mm-hmm. It felt like that. Look up the the scene again uh just so i can see the um make the comparison but yeah uh, and it's very visually stunning you see throughout this movie that the yeah, influence I mean, it's a very of holy visually mountain striking film yeah uh, yeah it is and you've seen it in everything from music video much like kenneth anger again like you right, see it in everything yeah. from music no, videos yeah, a lot of directors like the sort of uh the the niche on the wall kind of yeah it definitely has that kind of feel uh white and black kind of gnostic Mm -hmm. kind of vibe going on so yeah yeah, that's what it kind of opens with and and then it jumps to like this guy also too Uh uh-huh big pointy almost like a witch hat too it's like like a a witchy it's like a classic witchy hat like wide brim pointy yeah kind of a quaker hat really Yeah. yeah so when when the when the thief climbs up this tower and goes through kind of this portal things get very visually kind of trippy he encounters the alchemist Hodorowski and his yeah. assistant. And that's where like another uh, recurring theme of, or I don't know, uh, interesting fixation of Hodorowski, uh, poop. He, yes, he's right. interested in poop. Yeah, he can turn poop into gold. 
And the yes, tower, says, you know, that's another tarot thing, by the way, right? You know. Uh, I think so. Yeah, the tower. Cars, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The two towers that are on fire. Just like, Well, you know, it's certain, just one tower, you know. No one says the two towers. Uh, like, okay, whatever. Um, anyways. Well, uh, I'm To become one, et cetera. Okay, right. uh, so the, the alchemist tells the thief, you are excrement. You can change yourself into gold. So, yeah, he, like, poops into almost like a, uh, like a beaker. And then a bunch of like magical spells are cast by the alchemist, and eventually the the turd turns into a hunk of gold. Right. Um, and then the thief becomes his apprentice. So the thief gets introduced uh, to seven people who accompany him on his journey. And this is kind of the most wild and kind of interesting, I think, like part of the movie. When you go through the seven Yeah, planets. I definitely think this is the most... Yeah, I remember this is the most kind of memorable, interesting part of the movie. I feel like it's also the most, like, kind of clear in a way. Like, it's the most, like, narratively clear. And, like, you know, that you get... Like, the most symbolically clear, I think. Especially for me, like, the first time I watched this, I remember being very struck by this part in particular. Uh, yeah, like, and it has some of the, of the best... The team, you know, the Ocean's uh, Seven. The Ocean's the, Seven of Spiritual yeah. Seekers. And yeah. The, no, and it really resonates, like, today as, you know, like, I don't know, like, Silicon Valley CEOs going down to Esalen is, like, a totally normal thing yeah. that in the early 70s, I mean, this Mars is the, is the like OG. Mars is, my favorite character um, in, in this, the, who's the weapons dealer, uh, who makes, like, you know, the little, like, Peruvian demons to help. Oh, oh like, yeah, the, the, toy, the toy weapons yeah. manufacturer representing Mars is the funniest thing where... It he basically goes like each one of these characters sort of gives a monologue over yeah, a kind of uh, who they are, yeah. a sequence of how they and they're all leading lights of business and kind of culture like they're these are these are the high bourgeoisie like the people mm -hmm. that have achieved the the most power possible and they want to go further now and achieve like real understanding and whatever but yeah some of them are really hilarious like the weapons manufacturer just manufactures toy guns for children. And like basically is part of a whole kind of entertainment industrial complex to brainwash Chilean children to hate Peruvians and prepare for a future war with them. Yeah. So there's like these hilarious like kind of shots of like a sinister like guy with a poncho and like an alpaca in the background or something <laughs> like playing yeah. a flute and everyone's like kill, kill, kill. You know, it's kind of stuff like that, like little children being brainwashed through toys to getting programmed to kill basically um but it's it's like a very like trenchant cultural commentary it's like very it's it's just absurd enough to be like really funny but the the meaning is kind of crystal clear actually wait no that was saturn the war the war toy maker oh yeah was representing right. saturn yeah, yeah yeah there was a real I, weapons manufacturer representing right mars. mars is the one who makes like the mystical weapons for different religions uh like you know they, they have like a gun that's like shaped like a cross and like a gun that's shaped like a yin yang or something you know they have like <laughs> a they have rock and roll wet like guitars that like shoot beams or whatever yeah um Right, right, right. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Saturn. For whatever reason, I uh, Isla, who's Mars. I was thinking that she did the thing with the uh, Peruvian toys, but yeah, right. It's different. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. There's a, a cosmetics manufacturer is is for Venus, and a, a millionaire art dealer is Jupiter. Yeah, a political financial sense. advisor representing Uranus. Venus a police makes chief and Neptune. I don't really understand like what the connection between Saturn and like war and toys is maybe like harvest like Kronos eating his own children 
Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think that, that might be it. Yeah. That might be it, like, sending your children to their death, basically, like, psyoping them so that they'll go to die for you because you're afraid that you'll be overthrown by them. Yeah. In a way, you know. I mean, they, they all do kind of, yeah, they basically all represent kind of the, like, the, the he highlights the most negative aspects of all of these characters and uh, goes through that in a very, like, weird kind of ritual chamber room that, like, spins around. Again, mm-hmm. very, like, next level kind of imagery for the early 70s. Then, you know, after the, everybody's introduced, they form, <clears throat> there's, like, a group of 10 of them. And the alchemist tells them all to burn their money as well as like the wax images of themselves. They go through these transfer, they go through like a bunch of like transformation rituals. Mm. And then they go to this place called Lotus Island, you know, Lotus Eaters, et cetera. And they're told that there's like nine immortal masters who live on a holy mountain. So the, you know, eponymous holy mountain is what they're searching for. And they, they have an interesting stop at a place called the Pantheon Bar which is right. like a cemetery party where people who have come to seek the Holy Mountain have kind of given it up and instead are engaging in drugs, poetry, or acts of physical prowess. I think they're also like, aren't they, I forget, are they Are they casually like killing each other there? Remember at the Pantheon they're casually bar? killing each other. But yeah, is that the same place where they kind of face their worst fears or that's before they get it to It might be bar? before. Yeah, I remember at one point, they all have like you know these sort of visions that also kind of match their personae like the guy who's venus uh you know he sees like himself as like an androgyny uh, or an androgene uh and has like these breasts that like are like monsters (laughs) that are attacking him do you remember (laughs) that like uh yeah yeah um yeah i'm trying to remember the other ones but that yeah, psychedelic weapon. It talks about psychedelic weapons. Yeah, that I mean, was. Uh, yeah, that's also I think part of the Mars like sequence. But then yeah, they go to yeah load. They do go to that Lotus Islands. Yeah, I guess it's after they leave the bar. But yeah, I don't remember exactly what happens like therein. Other than that, yeah, there are people there who have like kind of like given up, you know. And it's kind of like a sort of in a graveyard. Like so, uh, maybe it represents like the idea of death you know or yeah something. oh that's right yeah or once like, they started you know, sending them out let go of the fear of death yeah uh, after the bar in they order start to leave it they have to face it yeah um, yeah they start confronting their worst fears and obsessions and then the thief gets sent back to his people along with a young prostitute and an ape who have followed him from the city to the mountain right the i guess he's not like elite bloodline or something uh so he doesn't get to go but then the rest, uh, conf- they, they finally come upon like the, the table where the cloaked immortals are sitting. But then they're revealed to be only faceless dummies. Yeah, this and is then, the part that like really blew my mind when I first saw this movie. I was like, well, like, you know, it's kind of like, you know, not that impressive now. But at the time I was like, wow, you know, because, uh, yeah, I mean, you can describe what what happens. Yeah it, it, yeah, it feels very because it's like it's one of those things that like people have done a bunch of times today or yeah. maybe have attempted to do. And it's one of those tricks that has diminishing returns like after yeah. the first time. It's like cutting to black at like the end of The Sopranos. Like nobody if another person tries to cut the black, everyone's like. What are yeah. you doing? That's lame. Like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. But the, I guess what's that's the, true. when like, you don't expect kind of it the first been, time, 
Yeah, I mean, there's many things like this that precede it, but you can't, like, do this in the exact same way. Uh, but it really works well, like, in this context, you know. Uh, yeah, so basically the alchemist then breaks the fourth wall and tells the camera to zoom back and reveals, like, the entire crew, like, the yeah, lighting people, the sound yeah, people like just the outside the, hills, the frame. You know. Yeah, and then yeah. He, he tells the audience of the film to leave the Holy Mountain and says, goodbye, Holy Mountain, real life awaits us, and then, like, runs off into the distance, and that's the end. Yeah. And so, yeah, basically kind of mocking the idea at the end a little bit that, you know, it, I mean, it is. It's kind of satirizing the idea that, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. all these uh, evil worldly people are actually, you know, can go on a quest and find this thing, the holy, you know, like like basically track it down like it's a holy grail or a commodity. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, like the holy mountain is like allegorical, you know. And I think that there are like, you know, some sort of references to that, you know. He says that he sort of uh refers to other different like sort of paradigms of the holy mountain, you know. Um like uh and there's all the people in the bar who kind of talk about how they have done like different sort of holy mountain thing. like you know like in the like they they talk about how like LSD is the holy mountain or something at one point right yeah. like they say like you know oh and all these like chemicals that's the holy mountain or whatever you know so Which again like, is a trenchant kind of a satirical yeah I think the idea that the holy mountain can be yeah it is and I mean but I, it's also like kind of a stock sort of esoteric or mystical point. But yeah, I mean, I think that it kind of extends that idea like of sort of what you see in the cemetery bar of like all the people who have given up the quest or like found sort of false holy mountains. Like obviously this sort of allegory of the mountain itself, you know, of like, you know, enlightenment as like an ascent is uh, especially as presented like in this filmic form. That's also going to be like, uh, you know, a falsehood. Yeah. And yeah. I'm also uh, seeing here that it it was actually yeah, based right. he on... He calls it Maya, right? The sort of uh, the famous like Hindu concept of the world is illusion, you know? I think he invokes that term. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he, he's also... I guess that this was heavily based on a book called Mount Analog, a novel of symbolically authentic non-Euclidean adventures in mountain climbing <laughs> by the French okay. novelist René Dalmal, who is a devotee of Gurdjieff. Yeah. So it has like well, an indirect Gurdjieffian influence, like yeah. for sure. All this stuff is like very Gurdjieffian. Like all these like theater people were so like into Gurdjieff. Like Peter Brook was really into him. Like he really like shaped like this kind of like uh, East West fusionist like occultism that was like so popular in the 60s. Like even someone like Eugene Shaw, as we mentioned, like he was a like a sort of Gurdjieff, uh, Gurdjieff influenced person. He even like took over the Gurdjieff Institute, I think in some like sketchy manner, uh, if I recall correctly. Uh, so yeah, like, uh, mm. it's like on that whole, especially like the overlap between like art and mysticism, like, cause Gurdjieff, you know, he taught dance, he taught movement, like through that sort of lens, like Gurdjieff is like an incredible, incredible influence. Like the fascination of like the whirling dervishes, like that all kind of starts with Gurdjieff. Um, yeah, 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 and Hodorowsky identified was deeply influenced by it. I think more than almost like I think you almost could say, and he does say later in life, in like interviews, that maybe like the way Kenneth Anger looked at Crowley, Hodorowsky looks at Gurdjieff. Yeah, I can and see which, that. which is you know like <laughs> I think they're they're different kinds of like intriguing or sus, but uh, Gurdjieff, uh, I don't know. I've, I've, I, you seem to know a lot more about Gurdjieff than I do. We'd love to do a deep dive. Yeah, on I him think we do need to definitely day. do a Gurdjieff episode. I mean, yeah, he's like not. I mean, 
Crowley like made a thing about like being evil, you know. Uh, yeah. People be like, oh, it's just to shock you, but it's like, <laughs> all right, well, I'm not like shocked. I'm just like, all right, this dude is like being evil. It's kind of like that thing where people are like, you know, it just like shows someone acting stupid, and they're like, ha, jokes on. Like people are like, wow, like go away, and he's like, jokes on you. I was only pretending, you know. It's like. Yeah, uh, like, look, I'm evil. Like, here I am, like, doing all this evil stuff. Like, you should, like, sacrifice a child. Like, and, you know, joke's on you. I was only pretending. Although he never really said that. Uh, that's just what people kind of say to, like, apologize from after the fact, like, giving him the benefit of the doubt um, when there's no real reason to do so. But anyway, my uh, <laughs> yeah, point is yeah. that, you know, I definitely think, like, obviously, Gurdjieff didn't make a thing out of being, like, evil. <laughs> you know, he wasn't yeah. all about, like, being satanic. Uh, and, you know, we talked about this, but Crowley, Crowley even at first wasn't really like he was a little bit closer to a Gurdjieff, but not like, you know, really, uh, obviously he like preceded him. So he wasn't really into uh, the same type of stuff. He hadn't like, obviously he didn't have that Gurdjieffian mold to cast himself into and he didn't have the exact same interests. There's some similarities, you know, they both had some explorations of the Islamic world, you know, Crowley had been into Buddhism, but Gurdjieff ultimately didn't become like possessed and channel like an evil jinn entity that like uh you know revealed a book that he himself was appalled by but he felt like nevertheless motivated to usher into the world and like shape occultism for the next hundred years but yeah so i would say <laughs> yeah. that gurdjieff is less uh is a little bit less like you know actively evil uh but still very yeah sus, but there uh, there is some there well there is some sus stuff and there, like there fraudly you know in addition to be like you know uh kind of yeah, like a and mis- some, as many of these like, mystical people are like charlatans uh speaking of you know sexual stuff uh i could read it now or or later but uh there there's like a passage in the spiritual journey of alejandro Hodorowski, um mm-hmm. which is a book that he wrote kind of a, like a spiritual yeah. biography which has more references to kind of like the mystical stuff that he was getting in and out of also oh yeah Maybe before we get into that, it's worth noting that at the time that he was making Holy Mountain, he was doing some he was he was rubbing elbows with some interesting people. Okay, so in addition (laughs) to like so uh, Alan Klein gave him a million dollars to make the Holy Mountain Mm -hmm. and he basically let me see. Yes, during the completion of the Holy Mountain, Hodorowski received spiritual training from Oscar Ichazo of the Arika School, who encouraged him to take LSD and guided him through the subsequent psychedelic experience. Around the same time, 2nd November 1973, Hodorowski participated in an isolation tank experiment conducted by John Lilly. I bet he so, did. okay, that's two <laughs> yeah, big hits right there go. because yeah, John definitely. Lilly, we talked about the Day of the Dolphin, huge MK Ultra like silicon valley like new age sus lord basically right like he he's up there with like ram das tim leary warner Earhart, like all these guys like believing in echo like solid state alien intelligence and stuff and i actually did find his book on archive.org um i forget what it's called the deep self yeah and you can look it up and he has like a log of individuals that did the isolation tank experiments and uh, yeah, Alejandro Hodorowski is listed there uh, as doing it in 1973. And also on that same list is Dr. Jolyon West. Hmm. Yeah, he was doing it too. And also Stanislav Grof. I think that we've talked about him before. He was the Czech scientist that sort of came over, I guess, defected to uh, the United States during the Cold War and was like one of the main... 
he was one of the top scientists in the Eastern Bloc that was studying psychedelics like before he came to the U.S. And then he like got deeper into it when he was here. I think he might have been at UCLA. I, I forget exactly. But yeah, like a few. Also, Paul Krasner, the guy who published uh, May Brussel, also did an isolation tank experiment with mm-hmm. Lily. So, you know, uh, he was he was just giving he was, them out he was to everybody all around during that time. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. Yeah. And also I knew this jumped out at me when I first saw this, that uh, Oscar Ichazo, um, because I know that I had like stumbled upon him before and there was something sketchy about him and like kind of new agey, whatever. And I looked it up and yes, like they were he was a human potential movement kind of guy and he was from Bolivia and I guess he founded something called Integral Philosophy, founded the Arica School in 1968. And um, and that's named after the city of Arica, Chile, where he once lived and led an intensive months-long training in 1970 and 71 before coming to the U.S., where the Arica Institute, incorporated in 1971, has since been headquartered. It's still around, by the way. I don't know what's – not much seems to be known about – or I, I haven't dug up much on like his early life or like how he got into this type of stuff, but he became kind of like a very big deal in the late sixties and early seventies. And actually most people might know, they might not know his name, but they know one of his products because he is basically credited as being the core kind of founder of the Enneagram of personality that is so popular these days. Right. At least it is in LA, you know, what's your Enneagram number, all that stuff. So mm-hmm. he basically, uh, and and he got those ideas, he, he got a lot of inspiration for developing the Enneagram personality from Gurdjieff, right? Yes, yeah. Directly Gurdjieff, from Gurdjieff. Like if you had asked me who came up with it before you had said that, I would have said that Gurdjieff really came up with it, but yeah. Yeah, the fourth way uh, was what he called it, right? Right, yeah, the fourth <laughs> way Enneagram. Uh, yeah, the nine point star, which, okay. Like if you look at the Enneagram, I've kind of been interested in Enneagrams like the last week, like, uh, the, like somebody brought it up, but I, like I did a little test, you know, I, I I was Mm kind of curious, you know, to see like what, what's up with this thing, but correct me if I'm wrong, but like, isn't the O9A symbol just like an inverted Enneagram? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, Enneagram is like a nine point shape so i yeah i'm looking at it right now and every enneagram website has that kind of like it 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 scares it scares you a little bit at first but then you realize it's almost like an upright pentagram versus inverted yeah i guess it looks a little bit different it's a little bit sharper it's still technically an enneagram uh because i think it does it has all the points count not what has nine points so maybe that's different from having nine sides uh actually like, yeah does, does the order of nine i guess the order of nine angles has nine sides because it only has like seven points that i can count right maybe it has nine angles and they're like you know uh uh seven vertices uh one two three four five six seven i guess it is uh, a little bit different it's like yeah. it's slightly different one, two, because it's three, like open four, at the bottom five, on the enneagram six, of personality seven, and it's sort of a uh, yeah, I'm trying to count to see if they have nine angles even. One, two, three, four, five, <laughs> six, seven. It seems like they have eight angles. Uh, but I guess like, you know, when you count the intersecting lines in between, you end up with a bunch of different angles. Unless I'm miscounting. I, I feel no, like, I'm looking at it too. I think we're fucking it up. I don't actually know. Um, no, I feel like this is just eight angles. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, 
Oh, now I got, now I got seven. All right. You know, I'm counting too fast. You know, I'm on the air and everything. But no, yeah, I think maybe it is seven, like, you know, angles in between. But they probably count, like, you know, there's all sorts of angles in this picture, technically, because, like, there's angles on True. the side and everything, okay. different crosses. I think we can settle on, like, it's it it looks similar, but it isn't exactly the same. Yeah, it looks same. similar. It, and I guess the Enneagram shape, this probably doesn't have, like, just nine sides either. It probably just has the nine points. It doesn't. Points. Yeah. We're uh, showing our asses on our, like, sign, like, our angle counting. Uh, our geometric not, abilities. Not um, um, yeah, not I was yeah, bad at geometry. I don't know how many angles there are. <laughs> I mean, I am good at geometry because I used to teach the SAT, so I definitely could calculate, like, you know, the... Uh, if I was just given a little bit of information about each one of these angles, I'm sure I could tell you what uh, the measure of each one was, you know. Sure. <laughs> um, but anyways, anyways, but, back yeah. to back to Enneagrams and, you know, Oscar Ichazo, like, so he kind of came up with this and then he had a follower named Claudio Naranjo who had studied under uh, Ichazo in Chile and Naranjo eventually came to the United States and became a fixture at the Esalen Institute. And uh, also really associated, uh, he was a successor of Fritz Perls, the founder of Gestalt Therapy, which I haven't looked mm -hmm. back into in a while, but I'm sure that it was used in very uh, weird ways at <laughs> Esalen. But yeah, so he, he got into the Gestalt Therapy community, began conducting workshops at the Esalen Institute, and... Uh, also became Carlos Castaneda's close friend and became part of Leo Zeff's pioneering psychedelic therapy group in 65-66. These meetings resulted in Naranjo's contribution of the use of harmaline, MDMA, and Ibogaine. In the 1960s, Naranjo introduced Ibogaine and harmaline into psychotherapy as a, quote, fantasy-enhancing drug. And then he went on a special journey by canoe up the Amazon River to study Yage with the South American Indians and so, like, I don't know, Yage letters, Allen Ginsberg, Burroughs. Uh, this one's a doozy, though. In 1969, he was sought out as a consultant for the Education Policy Research Center created by Willis Harmon at Stanford Research Institute. His report as to what in the domain of psychological and spiritual techniques in vogue was applicable to education later became his first book, The One Quest. During the same period, he authored a book with Robert Ornstein on meditation. Yeah, so basically he's like an SRI, like sus lord. Um, Willis Harmon, yeah, he was the he was one of the, the one of the big wigs um, and and was a co-author. Oh, wait, Willis Harmon is is a what's it called? Changing Images of Man, right? Institute uh, of Noetic yeah, Sciences. So. Yeah, yeah, and co-wrote a bunch of books with Joseph Campbell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was, I believe... Willis Harmon. Yeah, that was Changing Images of Man. Yes, and he he also... Willis. Yeah, and Harmon also... W. Markley was another big... Uh, that's right yeah yeah and this is also a guy he was a part of the institute of noetic sciences with edgar mitchell the et friendly uh, astronaut and he also recruited al hubbard to sri oh wow to the alternative futures project one of the goals of which was to introduce business and thought leaders to lsd <laughs> cool uh cool. have you ever seen the okay. uh, you know our favorite uh, like uh, illustrator of baphomet uh eliphas levi did kind oh. of a nine point star have you wrote the great magical arcanum uh, that's also kind of an Enneagram shape. Uh, I, I don't, yeah. but actually Hodorowsky said in an interview in the 2010s that his two spiritual fathers were Gurdjieff and Eliphas Levi. Yeah, well, if you look at, like, if you look up the great magical arcanum, uh, like, and Levi, specify Levi, because you'll probably get a bunch of different things, like, 
you can definitely see the resonance like with the sort of holy mountain and also kind of a a, a nine point star uh, or I guess it's a seven point star but it's uh it's similar to the the enneagram uh, in a way like it has the sort of different uh, nodes and the different planets uh, so interesting yeah, a, okay definitely... well how about this because I don't want to be accused of you know I don't know uh, Esselin jacketing Hodorowski just because like a guy that he followed you know, had another follower that created the Enneagram and was an Esalen Sus Lord. I see here because uh, Claudio Norano died in 2019. There's a tweet here from Hodorowski that says, uh, translated by Google, to God, my friend Claudio Naranjo, who I knew as a pianist in Chile when he was 17 years old, a fine, intelligent boy without a father, he died becoming the father of many. So damn, they knew each other as teenager. Like he knew him when he was a teenager in Chile. So like they go way back to get they go way further back than uh, Oscar Echazo even. So, you know, I mean, I don't know, like what was going on in Santiago <laughs> in this like bohemian scene? Uh, I, I don't know. It's just interesting. All these guys would end up like having this kind of global influence and like being really tied up with like the California New Age and kind of the avant garde like occult adjacent undergrounds and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, well, something was going on, definitely. I mean, they found the uh, ancient city of the uh, the giants, you know. I mean, <laughs> it's interesting that he represented, yeah, like the, uh, the Spanish conquest and the destruction of the Aztecs, you know. Well, I mean, even today with, like, ayahuasca and things like that, like, you know, uh, to bring up Idris Shah for the third time is another example. Like, you know, if you're foreign or exotic, then you can have a certain cachet because, like, wisdom is always hidden in like the outside you know in, yeah, in the uh, you know foreign world so if you can represent yourself as being from that world then you can have a huge cachet like in these circles and i think that hodorowsky definitely like fills that role for people you know the fact yeah even he's, though he's kind of said that i mean maybe naranjo and Ichazo like really leaned into it harder like the kind of shamanic vibes but mm-hmm. uh, hodorowsky actually said that he doesn't like he doesn't really like Latin American magical realism and he doesn't really like kind of calling back to like, I don't know, maybe like pre-Columbian uh, like folk tradition stuff because he feels like, and maybe he's right about this, like maybe he has a point that the folk traditions are so mangled and divorced from like whatever they originally meant that it's almost like not worth getting invested in because they're, it's like this very fragmented, lost kind of um you know, incomplete kind of a spiritual tradition or whatever. Uh, um, I mean, I guess, so but like, that's a hundred percent true of Gurdjieff and like all new age stuff that it's oh, like, for sure. well, he says it about the tarot. He says it about the tarot as well. It's like, yeah. he spent, like years like tracking down like some French nobleman who was a descendant of like the first family to like publish the Tarot de Marseille, you know, in like the 1700s and like meticulously like put it back together because like every little thing matter, you know, it's like he, he seemed to be like hyper kind of, um, I don't know. But at the same time, he is like he's kind of dabbling in all kinds of things. And yeah. I feel like if you're a good Jeffian, you're dabbling by definition. Right. Yeah, for sure. Like it is like a hodgepodge. I mean, he represented it as like a legitimate teaching like passed to him, like from various masters. But like it's not true. Like uh, there's a lot of like uh, fraudulence and like charlatanry involved in that. And like definitely like tarot like is is like full of like nonsense i mean yeah obviously like, you can look into it like deeply but you know just like the use of tarot like as a 
uh, divination tool. Like, it's just so murky. Like, I just feel like you can't even, like, get to the real, like, root or the, the wisdom of it. Probably, like, the idea of, like, card divination, like, predates tarot. And, like, you know, I, I would say that, like, almost, like, I would be more liable to trust, like, an oral folk tradition of than, like, you know, I don't know, some book by, like, you know, by then a, a teacher or guru, like, who is basically coming out of nowhere, like Gurdjieff, you know, to, yeah. at, like, adequately represent a tradition. Or uh, uh, Eliphas Levi, for that matter, like, who I think was kind of, you know, they were uh, not really exponents of a tradition per se, although to an extent yeah. a lot of people style themselves in that way, but they were much more, you know, innovators or, like, revivers, a.k.a innovators um yeah 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 well i have it's it's on my mind but i'm looking at his spiritual autobiography just to put like a real cherry on top of the gurdjieff discussion i feel like i have to read this because it's like it's strange this is chapter nine work on the essence and it describes how hodorowski had like a sexual encounter with one of Gurdjieff's daughters in Mexico in, I okay. think probably the early seventies, but this encounter. is like a wild story. And it mentions some things about Gurdjieff that like casually mentions things about it that are kind of like red siren emoji, like, wait, mm-hmm. what? Okay. And, uh, uh, by the way, like content warning, you know, if you got, if you got little kids listening to the car, uh, this gets a little, uh, X rated, um, okay. in, a, in a kind of yeah. mystical kind of way. If you're listening uh, to this little jihad in your minivan with your toddlers <laughs> you're on your way to, to elementary yeah. school. Uh, yeah, exactly. yeah, you're waiting in the line. <laughs> yeah. 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 Maybe, uh, yeah. Uh, just take caution, but okay. So. He says, uh, when I saw her at the Ethnology Museum of Mexico, Reina Dacia was explaining the Aztec solar calendar to a group of Americans, men and women dressed in an Eastern style, like the figures in the paintings of Jean-Leon Jerome. That same morning in the conference hall, I had given screening of my film El Topo for a group of journalists. In a humorous mood, I had dressed as a cowboy, black leather pants and overcoat, black silk shirt, large hat, and a belt with a white-handled revolver in its holster. When the screening was over, the critics treated me to insults, permit pernicious foreign vermin, raving egomaniac, donkey murderer, and so forth. I left the room wandering the halls, trying to calm my rage. From afar, I was attracted to Reina Dacia's outlandish group. Her eyes met mine and held them. She let out an exclamation of surprise, opened her arms, and ran toward me. I actually thought she was running towards someone else until she embraced me with great warmth. I was disconcerted. In spite of her crazy turban, her lacy blouse, her bangled vest, her multi-layered gauzy skirt, and her frizzy hair, which spread out like an aura of black tar, she was a woman of irresistible charm, with proud breasts, a luxurious bottom, and two azure wells for eyes. Holding on to me, she spoke with a deep voice and warm breath. Quote, Three days ago, I saw your film in New York. I fell in love with El Topo, that bandit who is at heart a visionary rabbi. I decided to come to Mexico. My excuse was to teach my group about the secrets of the Aztec calendar, but my real goal was to meet you. So you see, when your mind formulates a wish with a true passion, it appears before you in the mirror we call reality. Her strongly perfumed skin stirred up a a kind of madness in me. I allowed her to take me by the hand out into the street where she hailed a taxi. During the drive, she kissed me with passion. When we arrived in her hotel suite, she undressed hastily, kneeled on all fours with her back turned to me, and lowered her head to the floor, forbidding me to undress. Then she asked me to penetrate her, still dressed in my leather cowboy outfit, hat, and boots. 
With mad excitement amplified by the intense wetness of her vagina, I entered her with a fierce thrust of my thighs. I was about to begin the back and forth when I was paralyzed by a sudden cry of, Stop! Don't move! I want you to serve as the axis of my passion. With amazing agility and a precise use of my own body for support, she turned around so that she was facing me, her thighs around my waist, her feet crossed behind my back, and her own forehead pressed against mine. In this new position, I was overcome once more with the desire to thrust inside her Eden, but she nipped this in the bud with a stop, so imperious I had no choice but to obey. A minute passed. It seemed longer than an hour. My whole pubic zone was trembling, aching to move inside her. I told you, (laughs) in this tormenting immobility, the walls of her vagina suddenly began to shake with a gradually increasing tempo. Finally, her entire vagina was convulsing, squeezing, and vibrating like a quivering glove. Inside this muscular tempest, I had no need to move. A few seconds later, my semen flooded her. (laughs) I had three successive ejaculations. Uh, okay, what? but here, here I know. Okay, <laughs> no, no, but here, here's this paragraph. This paragraph. Okay. Oh, wow. It, all right. It okay. gets worse. So it gets, or it gets, it gets more all right. extreme. Okay. All right. I told her I had never before met a woman of such mastery. She confided, "I had a great master myself. I wish you to know that I am a daughter. Do- I am the daughter of Gurdjieff." In 1924, the master visited New York with a group of disciples for a demonstration of his sacred dances. My Dear mother. God who was 13 years old at the time, brought him some food. Let me read that again. My mother, who was 13 years old at the time, brought him some food that he had ordered from a Russian restaurant. He seduced her and taught her these vaginal techniques, which I learned from her. Gurdjieff said that through laziness, most women have a dead athanor. From childhood on, girls are taught that only the phallus is powerful, active, and vital, and that what they have between their legs is a mere receptacle, a kind of swamp whose function is to be filled by sperm. People take it for granted that the vagina is a passive organ, but there is a world of difference between this kind of passive nature and that of a deliberately trained vagina. Gurdjieff taught my mother to awaken and develop her soul by developing a living vagina. Uh, deciding to offer me a demonstration, Raina split her legs, contracted the lips of her vulva, and with a soft, airy sound, began to pump air into her vagina. Then she expelled it with a powerful hiss. Um, it goes. It goes on from there. Like it keep. She All demonstrates right. many things to him. <laughs> uh, and so, okay. So going back there. Uh, so not literally the daughter. I think. Well, I don't know actually if she's the daughter of. Well, okay. Yeah, no, because she's saying that her mother met Gurdjieff when she was 13 years old, bringing him food in New York. And Gurdjieff seduced her, the 13-year-old, and taught her all of these, like, vaginal techniques, which she then taught to their daughter. It might not necessarily be Gurdjieff's daughter, but, you know, it could be the daughter of someone else uh, with the same woman who taught her the techniques that Gurdjieff taught her. when she seduced her at age 13 uh he seduced her at age 13 theoretically yes um Uh, and then then they get in like a fight uh after they like have sex again and she does all these demonstrations and she kind of says things that sound very like enneagram gurdjieffian whatever um Mm -hmm. because i guess uh like after after they make love, she I says mean, that whole you are story, loved. I guess could be sorry. I guess that whole story could be like fake, but I mean it has lots of weird details, like the aspect of her mother being thirteen. Like why would you even include that? All right, whatever. Anyway, sorry. Keep going. Right. Uh, I mean, yeah. No, it, it, it's really. Um, but then she kind of calls him out for like there's three you know. like chains of transmission that like 
included that detail. Like, the woman chose to include the detail, and then, like, Hodorowski chose to include the chose detail. Chose to include it and still yeah. call himself, like, it doesn't bother him, per se, but, that, like, his guru, great. the person okay. that he looks up to as his spiritual father, um, was seducing 13-year-olds. Just randomly and, seducing like, them. Even, like, for, even for 100 years ago, I feel like that still was bad, <laughs> like, back then, right? Um, like that, Well, I mean, Gurdjieff, I mean, like, was a weird guy, like, fr- kind of, like, from the sticks like a little bit but uh yeah like i mean it's definitely like bad no matter what like even if you're like you can't have it both ways like if you're so like you know from he was from uh you know like uh alexandrpol he was born in you know the in the russian empire alexandrpol so like Mm -hmm. you know he was a little bit like uh off the the beaten path in terms of his background but uh you know, like, I feel like you can't be so, like, outside of, like, the cultural norm that you, like, you know, think it's okay to, like, uh, like, be sexually involved with, like, 13-year-olds. I mean, well, we had, like, people, I mean, he was kind of, like, a rock star in a way, like, a spiritual rock star, so you could compare him to, like, you know, Bowie, like, doing the same thing or whatever, but uh, that, like, definitely was considered not good, like, by many, even though some continued to make excuses for it. And, like, I feel like definitely, like, the way that encounter was described, it seemed like it was not, like, in the context of a marriage at all or anything like that. It seems like it was just, like, like a random hookup. Let me teach, but let me teach you, like, some sexual skills. Like, that's some Um, uh, grooming. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Like, it's, but this, you know, supposed daughter of Gurdjieff, whether that's literal or she was just sort of raised in that you know, milieu or whatever. like her, she was the, un, her mother was the underage lover of Gurdjieff. I don't know. Hodorowski says to her, you know, after they're done, like you've shown me Nirvana, but I would have preferred you to say, I love you instead of you are loved, which I guess is what she said. And her blue eyes flash with utter disdain. And she says, basically, as I multiplied my kisses, I perceived you moving back through time. From 30 years, you went to 20 to 15 to 10 to 5. Suddenly, you were six months old, a baby marveling at having found uh, a universal mother. It's like Kate Bush's song. Uh, uh, that is what you're feeling right now. Should I accept such an unworthy role in saying I love you? What do you want? By soliciting my love, what you were really saying is, because I never had the tenderness of a mother, I'm confused and lost in my life. You are my only emotional refuge. That's why I cling to you. Be authoritarian. Guide me. Possess me. Ground me. Nourish my soul. Never abandon me. Satisfy my desires constantly. Amuse me when I'm bored. Make delicious food for me. Forget yourself and admire me more than anyone else. Become my audience. So damn, we're kind of like ripping it in here. You know, she says, by wishing to have me, centering yourself in possession, you go astray. Love is an infinite energy that surges within you and has nothing to do with the image you have of a separate self. She also says, like, when you say I love you, which one of your multiple selves is speaking? The mental eye, the emotional eye, the sensual eye, the moral eye, the cultural eye? What is the profound eye that is independent of age, sex, nationality, or beliefs? When you define yourself, which part of yourself is making this definition? Can you say, without dividing yourself in two, I am what I am? Do you realize that you are not an individual organism? Uh, it's like she keeps going. It sounds very much like kind of Enneagram, like kind of like which which you is speaking right now kind of thing. Um, she says that my blessed father Gurdjieff said, whoever does not create a soul lives like a pig and dies like a dog. You've been taught that you were no one, that no inner God lives in the center of your dark psyche. 
technically true. Your parents seeing you as only a projection of their selfish plans never saw you. Not seeing you, they never knew you and forbade you to be who you are and permitted you to be only who they wanted you to be. They did not love you. This is why you brew all this emotional muddle around women who will never be able to love you as you would prefer. In a state of perpetual neediness, your I love you actually means mean mommy, you don't love me. I search in vain for your look. If you don't want to see me, then then I don't want to see me and I must be as you imagine me to be. If you do not tell me who I really am, then I am not. I remain a child. I cannot become an adult because in order to do that, you would have to see me as I really am. And that's impossible for then you would have to be able to see yourself as you really are, which in turn is impossible because your parents, my grandparents, never saw you because I am afraid you will abandon me. I'll distance myself from you first. Uh, and then he says, suddenly losing control of my rage, I seized a chair and smashed it into a mirror. Walking heedlessly over broken glass, trying to hide the limp from my injured foot, I dressed, lashing out at her with insults. You insolent didactic charlatan. You've read a handful of books on psychoanalysis and you think you can pass yourself off as a master? Daughter of Gurdjieff? Don't make me laugh. I was still hurling these insults as I opened the door, a shoe still in my hand, and I was so furious that my voice rose at a scream at the last phrase. At that precise moment, a blind Taurus passed in the hallway with a guide dog. Startled by my scream, the dog sensed aggression and began to bark loudly. The blind man was frightened and began to call for the hotel police. I jumped from the corridor back into the room and closed the door. Rain and Dacia received me with hilarious laughter. You see, you can't escape so easily. A blind man's dog stopped you. In English, dog spelled backward is God. The (laughs) God of the blind, the ignorant like you, obliges you to listen to me. I mean, okay. Like, uh, yeah. So then she starts like, she starts like, <clears throat> which explaining to him like mm-hmm. why he's fucked up you know you must understand this the only true couple is not a symbiosis but a collaboration between two free conscious beings cease to beg for love i'm not your solution still less your crutch the purpose of our meeting is not to share the sublime pleasure of an existence that is neither mine nor yours an alchemical text says from one substance two are made and from these two one is made that bears no resemblance to the first substance Hmm. Your intellect is like a wild horse that you've never tamed. It does as it pleases, dominating you, directing you under the influence of insane ideas implanted in it by your ancestors ever since your birth. Instead of being the slave of its desires, you must teach it to obey and develop it into a machine without limits. Your theories are just words, I retorted. You brag about this power, but it's impossible for you to demonstrate it to me. Okay, this is this is fucking bizarre what happens next. This is like some targeted okay. individual like uh, schizophrenia. <laughs> like okay. uh, she says it is possible and I will demonstrate it. Psychological barbarians such as yourself find it entirely natural to spend hours training their body in sport, yet it never occurs to them to train their mind. My blessed father rarely had the time to come see me himself, but he appointed one of his major disciples, Alfred Orridge, to take charge of my education until I was 13. This remarkable man taught me psychological exercises that permitted me to realize what you shall now hear and see. Okay, so she was his daughter. Then, like a monkey entranced by a cobra, I watched a fascinating spectacle. Standing on her left leg, Reina Dacia traced a figure eight in the air continuously with her right leg. Meanwhile, her left hand continuously traced a square and her right hand a triangle. All the while, she recited a seemingly chaotic succession of numbers. In continuous movement, Reina paused only briefly in her reciting, explaining the different exercises. They were so complicated, I could not remember all of them, though I do remember a few. I heard her recite very fast and seemingly nonsensically the multiplication tables from 2 to 22. For example, 8 times 1 equals 8, 8 times 2 equals 2, blah, 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 and thus on to 8 times 100 uh, equals, uh, I don't know, 800. It sounded to me like a computer gone haywire. Listen to this carefully. 
Two times eight equals 16. If I add the one and the six, I get seven. You understand? No? Another example. Eight times 12 equals 96, and nine plus six equals 15, and one plus five equals six. Therefore, eight times 12 equals six. How much is seven times seven? Without giving me time to think, she replied, seven times seven equals four. I was feeling dizzy. Relentlessly ran a continuity <laughs> exercise and then complicated it even more. While continuing to recite the table in ascending order, she interspersed it with an alternating descending order. Eight times one equals eight. Eight times 100 equals eight. Eight times two equals seven uh, eight times 99 equals nine eight times three equals six eight times 98 equals one as she continued her reciting and movements i did manage to verify one part with a laborious mental calculation by multiplying eight by 98 i obtained 784 seven plus eight plus four equals 19 one plus nine equals 10 one plus zero equals one indeed eight times 98 equals one for an intermin interminable hour, Raina held me spellbound with further mental juggling. Some of it was absurd, such as mixing two tables together. And she went on like this, like blah, blah, blah. And a feeling of terror began to grow in me as this woman began to dance as a sinister machine with very complex and sinuous <laughs> movements that had not the slightest hint of seduction to a music that did not exist for me. The oh more complicated God. the dance became, the more insanely complicated her numerical exercises became. In her trance, she shouted, number one is Tom, number two is Dick, number three is Harry. And then she counted Tom, Dick, Harry, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, Tom, zero, Tom, 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 Dick, oh Tom, Harry, gosh. Tom, four, and so on, substituting, for example, five Harry, Tom for the number 531 then to complicate things further she yelled now i'm changing tom equals two dick equals five harry equals seven anyway i felt as if my brain and my entire body would explode from all these complications when i could stand it no more i leaped up grabbed her and halted her gyrations get a hold of yourself you lunatic your problem is that you've never been trained to develop your soul you've been taught to be only a kind of circus performer it is like the story of the juggler who prevents presented himself to the king after 20 years of training he had achieved the feat of juggling 100 chickpeas at once without letting a single one fall as a reward the king gave him a barrel full of chickpeas and she said, so, I see that you do not understand the importance of these exercises. You were an artist established in the habit of pulling from your navel all sorts of garbage, which are then qualified as works of art. Yet they are only the expressions of a pack of contradictory egos that you call I. Your mind creates one thing. Your emotional center wants something else. Your sexual center demands still another thing. Your body is going its own way. And meanwhile, that which should be your soul is an egg that no one is hatching. You are a chariot pulled by four horses straining in different directions, and the coachman is fallen asleep at the reins. Of course, the inner jewel is still there, but veiled by a cloud of contradictory thoughts, feelings, desires, and actions. There is no real will, no unitary goal, only a chaos of changing objects under which is buried an unchanging subject. You cannot hear the beating of your heart in a city roaring with traffic. What arrogant presumption, I retorted. How do you know I have not attained inner unity? Every morning I meditate for two hours with a Zen master. What are you seeking? Awakening. Then you're a dreamer. You seem to think you're climbing a ladder with only one rung, but it has many more. You sit motionless on your butt in this zendo, hoping to attain a mysterious state that they've taught you to name awakening. You're like a parrot that salivates when it sees clouds because it's been taught that they're also called banana. <laughs> you okay. imagine that awakening is like obtaining a piece of gold or a precious object that you can then keep, like a halo around your head. It's ridiculous. Only when your stagnant ideas become fluid will you experience your first explosion of consciousness. And of course you will think that will last forever, but you are mistaken. In this dimension of reality, the only permanence is impermanence. That which does not change stagnates. Acquiring fluidity can be likened to a large stone falling into the middle of a lake. The shock creates a circular pattern of waves that covers the entire surface of the water. The expansion of consciousness is infinite, but the lake of the mind is finite. 
Once the process begins, you will go from awakening to awakening, from smaller to greater surprises, never ceasing to be astonished before the newness of the world. Do you understand? You have been searching for a static awakening, whereas there is only continual change. She grabbed me by the shoulders, pressed her face to mine, and cried. Stagnation is not only mental, it is also emotional, sexual, and physical. Break down your dams. A dense anger made my heart pound. I agree to be your lover, not your pupil. Then why are you so angry? I only want to give. And giving has nothing to do with obliging someone to receive. Give me only what I ask for. Very well. Then shut up and let's fuck again. And then they started having sex again. And then she starts talking about like kind of like kundalini, like anal stuff is like mm-hmm. the highest level of uh, – you get the idea. Yeah, <laughs> like, I get it. But I mean it actually sounds a lot like maybe some of those ideas or that experience of these monologues and stuff kind of found their way into the Holy Mountain. Yeah, I mean that does kind of like uh, you know this is an article from uh, GurdjieffFourthWay.org. Uh, it's literally GurdjieffFourthWay.org slash PDF slash Sexual dot PDF, <laughs> and uh, it actually seems kind of similar. Like uh, it says, uh, by all reports, uh, Gurdjieff was a vigorous, charismatic man with a robust sexual nature, described by biographer James Webb as a sensual man who enjoyed the pleasures of bed as much as those of the table. Gurdjieff's sexual conduct shocked many people in the 1920s and 1930s, especially in conservative America. They were rumors that he had a highly varied sex life and was involved in unusual sexual practices. Some claimed he was a master of exotic tantric sexual teachings learned in the East. While many of these stories surrounding Gurdjieff and sex were clearly fictitious and based on hearsay, there is a body of information on the subject gleaned from the written accounts of his pupils and research by biographers, scholars, and academics that can be considered reasonably reliable. He held many traditional conservative beliefs. He strongly condemned masturbation, contraception, and homosexuality as affronts mm. to the proper order of nature. But, you know, as a result of his... Uh, you know, the condemnation of contraception. He ended up having like a lot of children by his pupils because he was wow. like rampantly having sex with them. He, uh, it's, he uh, this article says at the same time, he clearly possessed a sophisticated and nuanced understanding of the role of sexuality in the process of spiritual transformation and enunciated a complex model of the transmutation of sexual energy to a higher developmental level. Sometimes Gurdjieff created teaching situations which revealed to his students and others the hypnotic power of their conditioned attitudes and unconscious expression of sexuality. So, uh, you know, it says, like, teachers in many traditions have done this, blah, blah, blah. The notion of the spiritual message must always be celibate and beyond the base desires of earthly sexuality is clearly an idealized myth. I mean, there is, like, a middle ground, perhaps. But, <laughs> you know, this article is kind of saying, like, is it wrong to have, like, you know, all these... You know, mm-hmm. he wrote in Basil Bub's Tales to his grandson that sex constitutes and is considered everywhere in our great universe for beings of all kinds of natures is the most sacred of all sacred divine sacraments. Sex plays a tremendous role, he said to his Russian pupils, in maintaining the mechanics of life, mechanicalness of life. Everything that people do is connected with sex. Politics, religion, art, the theater, music is all sex. What do you think brings people to cafes, to restaurants, to various fits? One thing only, sex. It is the principal motive force for all mechanicalness. Sex which exists by itself and is not dependent on anything else is a great achievement. But the evil lies in the constant self-deception. Okay, it seems like, you know, yeah, maybe this uh, woman at least was, like, privy to this type of stuff. You know, he, uh, like... Uh, said that uh, one he guy may have Fritz- fathered a child by her. She wrote a letter with a picture with like a baby and mm. from Bali and wrote me and my daughter Ivana. I don't know whether her father is you or Don Prudencio. Okay, damn, I don't uh. know who Don Prudencio is. Uh. 
John Bennett, uh, Gurdjieff's student, conducted extensive research on him and said, his sexual life was strange in its unpredictability. At certain times, he led a strict, almost ascetic life, having no relation with women at all. At other times, his sex life seemed to go wild, and it must be said that his unbridled periods were more frequent than the ascetic. At times, he had sexual relationships with only, uh, not only with almost any woman who happened to come within the sphere as his influence, but also with his own pupils. Quite a number of his women pupils bore him children, and some of them remained closely connected with him all their lives. Others were just as close to him, as far as one could tell, without a sexual relationship. So, uh, you know, while some claims may be exaggerated, there's no doubt he fathered a number of children. You know, he didn't believe in contraceptives. You know, his women followers obviously adored him. This is what someone wrote in the 1930s about him. And some of those who had found favor in his sight had visible mementos. Swarthy and liquid-eyed children. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, he went to, he went up to some, I think, um, like Aztec uh, temples and monuments and stuff like that with her as well. They did some explorations mm. around Mexico, at least. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, there's a picture in the book here of her with uh, Gurdjieff, her dad. So yeah, yeah. well, I mean, you know, he, I mean, do they damn. look alike? Uh, it's hard to tell because Gurdjieff's older and kind of mm-hmm. very ridiculous looking. Um, I say, yeah. yeah, he's definitely he's got that mustache in that in that picture too. Yeah, Hodorowski also, stash. I think, had an affair with a a a, a satan- like liter- a literally satanic. Uh, I think it was a tigress, like in a circus. Hmm. Who a tigress? Yeah, like a ti- like a tiger tamer or oh, you know, okay. somebody like that. Who was in like a satanic cult. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, he mentioned satanic cult. Okay. He mentioned in the theater that like uh Gloria, this woman um in the Frau Frau theater, Gloria pointed to a certain place on the floor and told me, "Under that spot three sheep lie buried to ensure prosperity. My boss had them slaughtered in a satanic ritual. Ever since we've had sold out houses every night." <laughs> Great. Okay, yikes. word. Wow, uh, lots yikes. of animal slaughter uh, in his world, it seems. Yeah. Yeah, the play they were watching, Nana, she described as a prostitute lives in luxury, kept by bankers and aristocrats, but everyone abandons her in the end when she catches smallpox. I'll take you backstage when it's over. Huh. Um, yeah, mm. wow. Um, okay. That's that's kind of dark. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, he was, he was running across some people that were like Satanists uh, along the way. Like actual like animal sacrificing Satanists uh, in the theater world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, um, okay. Which I guess you know you'll you'll get there. Uh, you, you will encounter that I guess sometimes. Um, yeah, uh, you certainly will. I guess we could look at briefly, I don't know, 
the rest of his like filmography, he didn't really. It's worth mentioning briefly that he got in a big fight in the mid seventies because uh, Alan Klein, I think, had bought the rights to a novel called The Story of O, which mm-hmm. I, I think was a French novel. Had a lot of like sadomasochistic kind of themes and but then at some point in the early 70s Hodorowsky got really into feminism and I think he initially agreed to do this movie but then after his kind of like feminist awakening was like wait no like I don't want to make this movie it's like brutalizing women and like eh, it's problematic I don't like it and I guess that led to a huge falling out between Alan Klein and Hodorowsky or yeah Hodorowsky um, which like lasted for decades, and it's actually the reason why uh, you couldn't really get a print or buy a copy of Holy Mountain or El Topo for like thirty years, I think. Mm-hmm. So like it kind of explains like the resurgence of interest in him in kind of the late two thousands, early twenty tens, because people could they could actually do screenings and buy it on DVD, et cetera, uh, for mm-hmm. the first time. And so I think his stock had always been high with like cinephiles and things like that, but it it rose and then it rose even greater when the documentary Hodorowsky's Dune came out Mm -hmm. I think in 2013 and I remember when that came out it was like a big deal everyone was talking about it but like I've we've talked about this I've never read Dune Mm -hmm. and until very recently I hadn't even tried to watch the David Lynch version of it which is horrible (laughs) really really bad I couldn't finish it and uh, and I, I did see the new one, mm-hmm. but I know you haven't. I but, haven't. I will. But but, but yeah, I'm aware of this I mean, thing. Everyone's like, talking about it. You know, like Hodorowsky's Dune is like the greatest sci-fi epic that was never, never made. made. And yeah, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, you can make a good case that it did end up kind of indirectly influencing like a lot of the biggest sci-fi movies. Yeah, that I, did I, come I, out. That's like the point of the documentary, right? That like its influence yeah. like sort of seeped in. Yeah, and it's entertaining things. watching Hodorowsky like recall like his passion and obsession for like two or three years to like develop and do pre-production on this project. And I mean, aesthetically, like with the art and everything, it does look, you know, it looks super ahead of its time. It maybe would have been interesting. He also changed up the story, though, in ways that <laughs> I guess I not surprisingly did, are like, for example, he made... Uh, uh, Leto, like uh, Lord Leto, uh, or whatever the the guy is, yeah. <laughs> uh, the um, father of Paul, the main character. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he inserted it that like, well, he's actually like Duke Leto, I think. Yeah, Duke Leto was castrated in an accident, so like he can't, uh, he doesn't have a penis, so he can't like produce an heir. But his wife, you know, uh, the the Duchess or whatever, um, is kind of like a priestess, and so she takes a drop of his blood and like inserts it into herself and like conceives Paul, the Messiah or the Mahdi uh, character, Mm -hmm. you know, in this kind of immaculate conception thing, which is just kind of like what, like, I don't know. Did anybody ask for like a castration thing to be like thrown in there? Like probably not. It's like one of those things where like, you know, uh, there's gotta be like the, what was the name of that guy? Like uh, Peters, uh, John Peters, the one who puts a giant spider in everything. Um, oh, I don't know about that. Yeah. Uh, I heard that the director of Dune also puts giant spiders in everything for like uh, Dennis Villeneuve or whatever. Oh, Del- Dennis yeah. Villeneuve. Um, yeah. I, oh, I hadn't noticed that. Denis, yeah. Mm-hmm. Denis. Um, now he's a talented director, but it was kind of like, actually, Hodorowski, I think he 
he gave a statement on the new Dune, maybe just on the trailer of it, which said that like I I wish him all the best, but it looks kind of just like a total corporate movie franchise with like no originality in it whatsoever, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And I think he's he's not wrong well, uh, about yeah. that. I mean, like it, it, it has sure the kind not, of grim... I haven't seen it, but I'm sure it's not original compared to uh, it, uh, you know, movie. I mean, again, I mean, it's better than like, David Lynch's. Movies aren't original but... relative to each other. Like they all like involve no, they like aren't. they all have to have castration. They all have to have <laughs> you know rape happening. Like someone gets hypnotized. You know, like et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's some tarot cards thrown around. Yeah. And, uh, I guess he changed the end to dune as well where i i don't actually know what the real ending of it is but he just like inserted his own and he wanted to make it he compared it multiple times to like he wanted to make it an experience like be on lsd but like a cool. movie and i think he had said wow, earlier about el topo uh, i mean yeah. <laughs> but he he said about el Whoever topo that he was yeah. going to make a psychedelic western but like in order to recreate a psychedelic experience like you it's not about showing the audience what it's not about showing the audience in the film, what a psychedelic experience kind of looks and feels like it's about making the film like a psychedelic itself so Mm -hmm. that it, I don't know, you know, I kind of get what he means, but yeah, I mean, uh, the, the Dune thing, I mean, maybe it would have been good. It also was going to be 14 hours long. So I think like truly ahead of his time, like, you know, for the seventies and, you know, he had H.R. Geiger and Dan O'Bannon who went on to do like Dune or went on to do Alien and uh, all that creepy shit. He, he, the kind of weird, interesting casting choices. Like he was going to have Orson Welles play the Emperor, or he's going to have Orson Welles play one of the Baron characters. And then he was going to have Salvador Dali play the Emperor. Mm, cool. And also Mick Jagger was going to play another character, probably the character that Sting ended up playing in mm-hmm. the David Lynch version. And that's where he told the story about, like, he was at, like, a party of like the Angers, French bourgeoisie. Uh, and I see, uh, I see Mick Jagger across the room and he's staring straight at me, you know? And, like, he met him at, like, some, probably, like, I don't know, the Rothschild mansion Kenneth or something. House. <laughs> yeah, <Kenneth laughs> Ang- at the Getty mansion. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he got all the, I mean, it is kind of inspired. It's kind of the kind of casting, the stunt casting that, like, the MCU would do today. Like, what if we just got like all of these like really well respected A-list like actors who you never think would be in like a comic book movie or a sci-fi movie and then like the you know the the main villain is like Bill Murray and like whoa oh, we no. never would have, soy face soy face uh, like you know never expected that uh, <laughs> yeah like, oh yeah dude uh, you know so what? I, <laughs> 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 yeah um word. jaws just like slamming into the floor yeah um, like literally yeah. like just barreling into the molten core of the earth <laughs> like uh just thinking about how fucking epic yeah uh, but yeah. to be fair to be fair and even though i noticed like if you look through like podcasts talking about like hodorowski's dune it's like a lot of like very like like fanboy type like film uh-huh. like culture podcasts <laughs> yeah. and stuff and uh, yeah but to be fair like i listened to some of his most recent interviews Views from like I think 2017 or 2018, like right before the pandemic, and then he did like an, a, a kind of conversation with like Darren Aronofsky, like during the pandemic, mm-hmm. and it, it, again we get back to kind of like he's the Chomsky now of like the film world, yeah. where he's like this old kind of like 
you know, Santa of this old wise Santa. And you kind of, you know, everyone's just kind of going to let him speak his piece and say whatever he wants. But he was saying some things that were like not not really bad. I mean, he seems to really hate like Marvel movies and superhero movies in general. Mm-hmm. He said something along the lines of like, you know, like this is a business, you know, and these uh, why they make movie from comic. <laughs> Why they make movie from comic? Because they want us to be children. Does he, he write he, comics you know? though? Yeah, uh, but he does write comics. And as we um, just before we recorded this, it was announced that his comic book series, which I I think he wrote maybe in the '90s or something, called uh, the Incal, the Incol, or the Incal, mm-hmm. um, is going to be adapted by uh, Taika Waititi. Uh, you know, awesome. clearly the heir to uh, the auteurist vision yeah, of somebody like Hodorowski sure. is uh, yeah, Taika I mean, Waititi, the brilliant, brilliant and like genius he, behind yeah. uh, Jojo uh, yeah. Rabbit. Uh, mm-hmm, right, not yeah, the cringiest movie. Interesting of the filmmaker, yeah. Um, and really like just so all smart. Of his movies are like so interesting. Like he's all the so movies smart that he does based funny. on shitty IPs are like just <laughs> great. Every comic book thing or yeah. stupid vampire skit that he's adapted into something uh, is just so brilliant, and he, that's yeah. why you need. Yeah, Taika. He's clearly like an auteur filmmaker. Yeah, I would definitely. He is an ultimate auteur. I'm sure Hodorowski is just like so honored to have his work yeah, adapted probably. by such a, mm-hmm. a genius um yeah <laughs> we're not really giving any reason why we hate i'm not down i'm not down with the vibe i'm not down with the vibe and i feel like that is the ultimate that's the thing i've noticed about hodorowski and maybe i don't know um i don't know this is interesting like leading up to this where he's now like 93 he's still around he's very energetic for his age and like cogent and like like youthful basically uh and maybe in contrast to chomsky he's like very it seems very like full of life and like vigor and stuff and um you know so people he really has like a really reverent following particularly among a lot of like hollywood directors and stuff i know like nicholas winding refn is like friends with him and like particularly the movies of the last like decade of his career like from dry bronson and drive onward have like very similar aesthetics and a lot of the time to Hodorowski. I think Kanye West modeled, I forget which album, but one of the albums was like very consciously uh, kind of used like Holy Mountain imagery as like a template and like the kind of big painted skies. I think that one where he was like riding around a motorcycle with Kim Kardashian. You know, mm-hmm. that was like oh, yeah. supposed to be very like and he's also like they met they're that friends was with each other. Because he was saying like this is the Hunger Games. This is when you have a male, you know, but he's a male hero, but like getting he always gets the black woman, a white hero always gets a black woman, but in this the black hero gets the white woman. And I was like, I don't know what that has to do with the Hunger Games, but like, all right. <laughs> oh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I but, missed that one. Yeah. I missed con- that explanation. Uh yeah, he did like say something uh like that, uh about that that video. Like uh what was the name of that video? I remember it being so weird. Um It was like love to like something yeah. something, like in parentheses. Yeah. Um I, I, love bound or like bound love like yeah, it was something along those lines. Um but you could definitely you could see it in a lot of like more uh, probably like a twenty four ish cinema. I think Ari Aster is definitely somebody that like utilizes um, kind of what you call Hodorowskian um, aesthetics a lot. Mm-hmm. Even though Hodorowski wasn't technically a horror filmmaker, 
Um, you could see it, and, and like to, bound yeah, bound to. to bound to, yeah, yeah. So you could, you could see it all over the just like with Kenneth Anger and like his the kind of inspiring like a lot of the techniques of music videos. You could see his influence, and of course in sci-fi, just through like even the unmade kind of project of Dune, it ended up having this like aesthetic influence, and and frankly like the ambition of it, like was only later realized by like Star Wars, and then like now again star wars like 30 years later and like the marvel movies and stuff like his vision of something that could be like the biggest thing in the world the biggest movie ever made that is like a franchise that even though he wasn't necessarily thinking of it in those like cold-blooded accountant terms and he kind of hates like the movie industry as it exists uh today i mean for kind of you know obvious Um, like it's a business it doesn't care about art it only like occasionally cares about art kind of incidentally as a means of making money but generally uh, i don't know this is off topic but i know like you know a lot of people like because kanye's like you know christian they're like uh base kanye you know like he's but i feel like kanye you know he's just uh i don't think he's sinister but i feel like he's very ingenuous and he's like kind of low-key psyoped like you know, like he's, uh, a, he's a Gemini, classic Gemini. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like he also like didn't he Hodorowski do like some tarot like reading for him or something? Yeah, uh, yeah, he did. Yeah, he used to give tarot readings at a cafe in Paris every Wednesday, and then yeah. he he kind of went to New York and did it at a museum for a while. Uh, interesting uh, crossover though, because you know who's been spotted with you know ultra Christian Kanye recently at like some of his live performances is Marilyn Manson. Well, I mean, he also, Travis Scott was on his song Praise God, you know, on the amazing album Donda, where, uh, well, I mean, you know, and he said, the devil my op, you know, the devil my opponent. Oh, is that where he said, I didn't realize yeah. that was on Donda, right. where yeah, he said the devil Everyone knows op. that op is short for opponent. It's like normal slang. Like, that's uh, obviously, like, when you say op, I think opponent, right? Um, uh, I think operator. <laughs> no, no. It's or psyop. Yeah, yeah. yeah, if uh, you say the devil my op, means the devil's my opponent, not. Not my operation. Not the, the not devil my is, is not my psyop. Uh, mag- yeah. Black magical operation, master. No. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> no, but, um, but hold on though, because like, because okay, Marilyn Manson's been hanging out with Kanye West even in his like Christian phase, and going back to the late '90s, Hodorowski met Marilyn Manson and they became kind of mm. buddies, right? Yeah. So they're both kind of adherents to like Hodorowski. I mean, he officiated Marilyn Manson's wedding, like we said. He uh, did. What the fuck? What is up with Marilyn? Marilyn Manson? Like he's been canceled. Like this. Like I like sevenfold over now. Like the sevenfold archangels have laid yeah, he's cancellations upon him. Uh, well, and he's still hanging out with a listers. Persona is based on like being canceled. So like uh, it just goes to show like what a horrible cancel culture you live in, and that. You know, right. Well, I guess right. like the people. I guess we're being satanic panicky say, like, by that. saying that. Uh, that uh, interesting example, by the way, of somebody that drapes themselves in like Nazi imagery, Charles Manson imagery, like serial killer, blah, I'm Satan, like death is whatever, and then it turns out they're like really into like abusing women, and uh, yeah, they're well, like a they're like a tier a one Me Too offender. It's, it's just, just like whoa, like because you know the mu- It's just music, yeah. man. Like yeah, it's exactly. not like, like it, it's, it's an expression of like his yeah. inner 
yeah feelings I mean, like or, everyone uh, knows that when you're an artist like and you want to express yourself like what you do is you just roll the dice on like a big roulette wheel uh like the like the red <laughs> mask one and like if it just happens to point like uh, if it could point to like you know wholesome like children's music kids bop or like a nazi satanist guy and like you just go with whatever it says like it doesn't reflect like your personality at all or anything but, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, this is the quote yeah. that I was thinking of, uh, you know, uh, Kanye said about bound Two, I wanted to take white trash TV t-shirts and make it into a video. I wanted it to look as phony as possible. I wanted the clouds to go one direction, the mountains to go one direction, the horses to go over there. Cause I want to show you that this is the hunger games. I want to show you this is a type of imagery that's been presented to all of us. And the only difference is a black dude is in the middle of it. Like, again, I don't get it, but he went on to say, uh, I'm like Marina man. Abramovich. Uh, he oh, continued referring no. to the fame performance artist. This is like performance art, not a really great article that, you know, has to clarify what she has when he says so anyway, but this is like performance art. The thing is, I got, don't got a problem with looking stupid. All right. Well, yeah, two weird references back to back just kind of jumped out at me. The <laughs> Hunger Games, like, like apropos of like seemingly nothing, like maybe he means like the movie is like a tacky Hollywood movie. So like this, you know, uh, video is also a tacky Hollywood movie, but instead of having like Jennifer, what's her name? Uh, God, I'm blanking on her name. Uh, Lawrence. Jennifer Lawrence. It has uh, Kanye West, I guess. I don't know. But um, hmm. I, I don't know yeah, what he's but, getting at there. But yeah. it is it is like the Hunger Games out there. Yeah, um, it certainly is. Oh, yes. inter- okay. This is interesting. Um, I just found something that said on Friday, March 14th, the great elusive filmmaker Alejandro Jodorowsky made a rare appearance in New York City for the, a screening of his first film in 23 years, La Danza de la Realidad, The Dance of Reality. The event was hosted by MoMA and introduced by artist Marina Abramovich, who said of Radarowski, I divide the world into two categories, the originals and the ones who follow. Uh, yikes. The originals are the people looking differently, like me, who take the simple elements of everyday life and make miracles. And for me, Alejandro, you are the one original. Uh, okay, so I'm yeah, you believe that like the, the slave uh, shall serve. In and the Zoom chat for you here. Okay. Um, Reddit. Uh-oh. Uh... Oh, you're saying Travis Scott music video references the Holy Mountain. Look we'll at oh, that picture. It does. It does. <laughs> it's like oh my the God, exact has, beginning with like, and you know. Young but, Thug and M.I.A. You know, M.I.A.'s baby daddy is the Bronfman that went to the Met Gala with AOC's like friend, right? Oh, right. Yeah, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, no, M.I.A. is like uh, piece of, a lot. Yeah, there's sus shit there. And Young Thug, I mean, we won't go full vid- vigilant citizen on Young Thug, but He's definitely somebody that has been kind of like clocked as somebody participating in kind of a vibes and symbolism of a darker <laughs> nature, um, I would say. Uh, hmm. And and has been very heavily like promoted almost I, I would say Young Thug's like more original and like an interesting artist to some extent than like Travis Scott is. You know what I mean? Yeah. But like, but he still feels like. But I mean, oh, I just there's like something going like on Travis there. Scott Hodorowski and something immediately came up, so I was like, all right. That uh, was the first thing. I mean, it is yeah. an influential film, but yeah. Yeah, um, people say the end of the video is MIA covered in flowers. Midsummer. Yeah, maybe it is. It, His videos run the gamut from. I could just see him being like, "Oh, look at these cool movies I watched." Like, let's just you know, or like whoever directed the video, but. We should talk a little bit about psychomagic because psychomagic is kind of like the application of like what Hodorowsky believes is like therapeutic for him, like in his films, like or therapeutic for his family members, like forcing them to like go through like the traumas that he experienced, like, uh, but applied to others. Like he makes them do like these weird, he makes people do these weird kind of rituals 
that sort of symbol symbolically reenact like traumatic moments in their lives or like whatever he imagines to be like their uh like formative or uh like sort of blocking thing and like you know makes them like go through this stuff uh like yeah, yeah that uh, that is and, and you can almost look at like also the two biographical movies that he made before that as yeah, kind like of almost like his own of version himself. of psycho magic yeah. like mm-hmm, working yeah. out the, the relationships with his father and he quite literally like pops up in the movie as his old self to like make his his own character and his father's character like hug each other like before you know they never see each other again i mean there's some stuff in there it's kind of like it's just it, it is kind of nice like they're I, I feel like like not evil like twisted fucking moments like it's not all like bleh, like welcome to my childhood like i don't know yeah like here's a bunch of satanic symbolism like bleh. it's like or you know even dunking on his father for you know being a stalinist um yeah, he definitely you know i was a little triggered at the uh the end of the first one the dance of reality where yeah, i imagine that you you might be uh, a little bit i yeah. mean it, it but it, it's kind of yeah there's like a weird kind of subplot i assume this is not true that in the movie his father's character is a part of this kind of like wacky sort of like eccentric communist cell mm-hmm. that is like filled with like um, I don't know, like sex workers and like jugglers and like other and like, you know, uh, depressed intellectuals, like whatever. And at some point he he gets fed up and he decides he's going to go assassinate the president, the, the you know, right wing president Ibanez um, mm-hmm. in Santiago. And through a bunch of weird circumstances, I won't spoil it all, but he ends up being like the stable man for uh Ibanez's like prized horse that he loves more than anything and he comes to almost like become like he sees the human side of like the right-wing dictator that as a Stalinist like he wants to kill (laughs) but then he like can't bring himself to kill it and at the end I think uh the the mother character who only sings in opera Mm -hmm. like Alejandro like she only ever like sings every other character talks and um and she kind of says, I think, to the father, Jaime, that, you know, you went out, you spent time with, like, the dictator and all the qualities, like, that you admired in Stalin, you found in him. And he's no. like, no, like, he can't handle it. And then he ends up, uh, there's a there's a portrait of Ibanez and there's a big, the big portrait of Stalin. And then she, like, unveils a big portrait of him, like, as a, kind of like a Stalinist portrait of the father, and is like, this is what you've been trying to being, but you've denied that you're like a man that is like sensitive and has feelings. And then he kind of has a breakdown and it sets all of them on fire, which like, you know, I think Stalin had feelings too. Um, I don't think we should just assume <laughs> that, you know, he didn't have feelings. Uh, I think it's a little, little you know, presumptuous, Fodorowsky. Uh, but, you know, I, I get it. it. It's also broadly sympathetic to like, the those kind of feelings of his father like mm-hmm. he doesn't seem to be like oh my father is like an evil tanky like blah 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 he even shows that he kind of hints at maybe one reason why he's so interested in like amputees and stuff like that because there's kind of like a greek chorus of minor amputees like that were in working in the mines and like got their limbs blown off and they like they sing a song about being like a minor song about 
like dynamite doesn't like have a name on it. It'll blow your leg off and like they won't <laughs> give you anything. So it's like all these like like basically like wounded like uh, crippled workers that are like l- dotting the landscape of his hometown that are always like getting in fights with his dad for some reason because his dad is like a Stalinist, but he's like a huge asshole. And he's mm-hmm. like, get these cripples away from my son. Like, don't, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, right. they're like, you're a communist, but like you don't care about, you only care about like what rich people think, man. And he's like, fuck you. Um, so, yeah, like he's like not, not a model Stalinist, I guess you could say. But anyway, I forgot what original point oh, I was well, uh, making. Uh, but but psychomagic, psycho right? That was like that, that's his himself. process, yeah, right? It's right. like all these things. And so then he tries to do it in kind of like this therapeutic setting with like a bunch of, he, I don't know, there's like a dozen different cases of people yeah. that he tries to cure, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, by doing these weird things that only have like, you know, he feels like he understands the language of dreams. So he can therefore like make you do the psychomagic ritual that's going to like solve your problems. Like if you have problems with your father, like he'll make you like dress up in like a pirate outfit, like and like a frilly shirt and like a tri-corner hat and like sing a song like in a theater. And that will like make you get over like your deep seated issues with your father or like if you have like issues with your spouse, you and your spouse have to like be tied together and like walk around yeah. like chained together, but never like look at each chain. other. Yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Or, like a yeah. stutterer. Yeah. He, I think he, he took a guy who like a middle-aged guy who like still stuttered and he was able, the, the interesting thing that he always points out is like your genealogy is like critical to, to learn before he like conduct, before he constructs a psychomagic ritual for you. He has to know like your family background because he believes that like trauma, these traumas and, and, uh, I don't know, like, uh, psychological maladies are kind of passed down over several uh, multiple generations but like our ignorance of them basically condemns us to sort of live like live in the repercussions of something that our you know grandparents or great-grandparents even might have done or things they went through so it's it's like an interesting concept he also he goes right up to the edge and i remember when this came out kind of Seeing, just seeing the title like suss me the fuck out like wait what do you mean psycho magic dude like, and <laughs> yeah just right up to the point of like, like this maybe like could doing magic, uh, but yeah he goes yeah, right yeah, up to the point in it that it magic right um, yes he goes right up to the point of like maybe this could cure cancer i'm not saying it could yeah but there's definitely one person here there is some kind of like uh you know uh psychosomatic healing ability that this has for sure yeah, he um, describes it as a placebo, but he, it's also like, right, and I think yeah. maybe I don't he's really not believe totally in wrong. Anything. Like, don't worry, like you know, don't worry, everyone. Like, I, uh, my beliefs are totally hollow. Like, I'm just very wacky. Like, you know, <laughs> he does say it idiots, up front, but also like, I can cure cancer with like. Yeah, he's afraid yeah, okay. of being called a charlatan for claiming to be able to like cure people's physical illnesses. Okay. Um, Fair enough. You know, and, and, I mean, fair enough. Like, and and he doesn't charge money for it because he also feels like he would be attacked for being like a charlatan, you know. So I guess to that but extent, didn't he like, charge money for it at one time? Uh, like he did an infomercial for it, right? Uh did he? Yeah, like uh, he um, claimed. He claimed in the interviews I said that that, that I saw that he he doesn't charge money because he doesn't want it to he that was his his big critique of psychoanalysis is that it's a business 
and right. that like mm-hmm. and that his he his thing is an art and so he he kind of yeah i mean it's it's convenient that you know different standards are placed on art uh even therapeutic art than on like medicine so he doesn't have to like i don't know rigorously defend it in the same way but that's also why he he holds off on i guess full but he's it's like he's discovered that maybe in some cases like there is a psychosomatic factor that could work but it's um i don't know it's maybe like he's not sure enough of it to say like i can do that and so therefore it's this kind of thing that's like described as you know uh but it also something that was interesting was like he's very uh big on like the physical touch aspect he considers yeah, it he necessary like for healing dick at one point right to like he does, it, like and transfers yeah. manly energy into him yeah yeah yeah, he does grab a uh, guy's dick, like, outside of his pants. Yeah, um, there's and an also dr- He, like, undresses, part. like, cuts off women's clothes and stuff and, like, swaddles them up like like they're a baby. Like, he, I mean, it it could definitely be, like, it's definitely a type of therapy that's, like, uh, you probably wouldn't want anybody just, like, doing this. <laughs> like, you know, there's, yeah. like, definitely, a, like, a real fine line of, like, you like have to be a, really down with him to do whatever to you, kind and of. And there's that scene, which I guess is in The Dance of Reality, like where he covers up his uh, like uh, a mother and her kid like cover themselves up in shoe polish. Like I did want to bring up that one scene because it jumped out at me in the Dance of Reality where <laughs> like, uh, the mother <laughs> like um, the mother uh, covers uh, young Alejandro. This is when he's probably like you know uh, eight or nine years old and covers him like head to toe with shoe polish. And then she takes all of her clothes off yeah. and like turns all the lights off and is like, "You're a ghost. Like you can move right, unseen throughout the night." Be- now count to 10 and chase me and then he chases her around and then when he catches her he starts like kind of painting like like the shoe polish all around her body like rubbing the shoe polish all over her naked body and then by the end of it they're both covered in total black and then he walks in as an older man and is like and after that night with my mother i was never afraid of the dark again (laughs) right and kind of like Okay. okay, that's like sweet, but also like, why'd your mom get naked? <laughs> yeah, very like, weird. Is that a the Chilean thing? Like, I don't, you know, again, like, don't want to, uh, you know, yeah, it was also uh, like the four, the thirties or whatever, but it, it's still like, he chose to have his mother be kind of, and a lot of times she's wearing like a very see-through negligee with him where you can like, just like see your nipples and, mm-hmm. you know, not, not being a prude, but like, it's, it's not being a prude about, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, yes. It's odd. It's odd. It, it's a little odd. It's yeah. a little odd. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and there's like definitely like, that. Okay. Uh. It's also weird because like, as he describes in interviews and books and stuff about like his mother and him didn't have a particularly warm relationship, but in the movie, she's almost like this Disney character that only sings in opera and is like, mm-hmm. yo Alejandro, like, I love you. You are a special child. <laughs> and then like the Stalinist right. dad comes in and is like bitch like where's my dinner like, <laughs> you know yeah. like it's, it's basically I uh, mean I guess that was the dynamic he was quite abusive but mm-hmm. like she was also emotionally withholding well that's kind of like how all like little kids see like their mother and father like in a way especially from like a psychoanalytic or psychomagicalytic point of view you know, like the mother is like this idealized figure and the father is like the oppressor, you know, like uh, yeah, maybe a lot it of this is. occult maybe stuff is. is like kind of inspired by like Jungianism, which I feel like has an element of the Freudian thing in it. Oh, yeah, know? definitely. Yeah. Definitely Jungianism. Yeah, I was just reading a funny, I found like a random blog post from a long time ago, which was just funny for like the 
like the 2012-ness of it all and like the current moment we're having, like arguing about like satanic influence. It mentions like Hodorowski, Ted Gunderson, like the Church of Satan. This it was called Disagreements Over Satan. Um, it's in the work Floyd, but I guess this I don't know. This guy's a professor or something. Um, like brought uh, brought a friend. Uh, they they were asking about Hodorowski. So he took over La Constellation Hodorowski, which is like, I think a 90s documentary about him. So she could watch it and see why I'm interested in him. Says I didn't want to hit her with El Topo and Holy Mountain right away. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I guess the disinformation series uh, from back in the day. And um, I thought she might like to see the interview with him as well as the stuff about radionics and uh, blah, blah, blah. We ended up watching a few of the segments, including the rather amusing, to me anyway, segment about Satanism. What I find amusing about this segment is the dichotomy between what people like former FBI agent Gunderson, who was interviewed for it, seems to believe Satanism is, and the reality of the slightly normal, the slightly dysfunctional Satanists mm. who were interviewed <laughs> for the piece. The two are complete, simply incompatible. My friend, however, did not find the humor in it. After watching the Montauk Project segments and the CIA mind-controlled sex slave segments, I found out that my friend is also a bit of a fan of David Icke. Um, of you know blah 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 she takes these things rather seriously and does believe it would seem in the idea of satanic cults abducting children sacrificing them SRA vast global networks of satanic child pornographers and the like while I think the stuff makes entertaining reading I've also had most of it debunked to my satisfaction (laughs) I do like to read the stuff however because I like to keep an eye on what's going on since sometimes my own interests could probably be misconstrued and I enjoy a good conspiracy theory as much as the next person I didn't think much of our differences in the subject other than to think that perhaps we have differences on it until it reared its ugly head again today. Apparently one of the kids, she's 19, so forgive me, in the Thursday class we were both auditing came up to my friend last week and asked my friend out of the blue if I was, quote, into Satanism. This kid was also in my Sufism class (laughs) and also in my history of consciousness class. My friend, let's call her C, told her that she didn't believe I was but that I had an interest in the occult. When C told me about this today, I started laughing, which apparently unsettled her. She didn't like that I was amused by any affiliation of me with Satanism. I jokingly suggested that I'll have to figure it out something spooky to wear to class tomorrow night, and that it was a pity I no longer had my Church of Satan youth group t-shirt. This really weirded her out. I can't believe you'd own something like that. Well, I don't have it anymore. It got lost in one of my moves. I do have a shirt with a bunch of skulls on it, however. Maybe I could just wear that. (laughs) I can't believe you own such things. How can you associate with people who are into Satanism? So we got into an argument about Satanism. I told her I had a few friends in the COS. This upset her even more. Apparently, I shouldn't be associating with such people. So from there, the argument devolved into what is or isn't satanic or Satanism. Wow. I'd asked her if she'd ever read The Fae. I know, right? Uh, Yeah, right? It's been going on forever, but it it gets better. Uh, I'd ask her if she had ever read The Fae, and maybe not surprisingly, she hasn't, and was rather upset that I had had. At this point, I'd like to apologize to the Sedians, the Lemites, Chaotes, etc. out there reading. I saw no need to expand the argument outwards to include you. I suggested she might be surprised at the similarities I'd found between LeVay and Carl Jung in terms of satanic philosophy and individuation. I've written a paper on the subject. I also provided her with some historical background on the origins and philosophies of the COS, but then got accused of changing the subject somehow. I also tried to explain the difference between bored kids in small towns with nothing better to do than torture animals and pretending to be evil 
and what she and others perceive as some sort of global underground network of child traffickers where blue-eyed blonde children fetch the highest price. Not interested. She believes it's more adults than kids, and they're far more organized. In addition, it got weird because at one point, she asserted that anyone who associates with Satanism is inherently, quote, evil, but then also asserted that people who commit evil acts somehow know their acts are evil, yet become trapped by this evil and are helpless and unable to stop. I will agree with this to a point, but I would also suggest this may not always be the case. I may consider many of the acts of George Bush to be evil, but I don't believe he does. I believe he, he thinks he's doing the work of good. What about the Crusades, I asked. Oh, here we go. Do you mean to tell me that they didn't believe they were doing good by killing Muslims and heretics? This got needlessly drawn out and complex. The gist of what I'm annoyed with, I think, is that for someone who claims to have an open mind and regularly takes it upon herself to chastise others for not having similarly open minds, to come out and criticize something she admittedly knows nothing about irritates me to no end. To somehow find me guilty for my association with known Satanists is her decision to make. But she knows of my interest in the occult, and to somehow think that it's all pretty is immature and naive. At this point, I wonder if it's even worth my time trying to put together a guest lecture for this class of hers that I helped design. Perhaps she would be better off with someone less evil than myself. I wouldn't want to somehow infect everyone with my satanic psychic cooties. There's a quote I'd like to refer her to. It's on my info page. Quote, there are only two courses open to logic. One can either accept the universe as it is, face every fact frankly and fearlessly, and make one's soul immune to the influence of any invasion, or abolish the whole thing by administering soporifics to the spirit. The pious pretense that evil does not exist only makes it vague, enormous, and menacing. Its overshadowing formlessness obsesses the mind. The way to beat an enemy is to define him clearly, to analyze and measure him. Once an idea is intelligently grasped, it ceases to threaten the mind with the terrors of the unknown. But given the source of the quote, Alistair Crowley, I don't expect she'd be interested in hearing it. One thing I've learned it's not, it, is that it's impossible to paint the reality in black and white. She's reminded me this uh, on occasion, too, when I've gotten particularly fixated on something. I've listened. I've reassessed. Uh, I've adjusted. This, in a way, is a good reminder for me that it's still possible to have hidden prejudices. I'm not saying embrace Satanism. That's everyone's choice to make individually. I thought about joining the COS for a while, but then decided it wasn't for me. But at least make it an informed choice. Read something, then disagree with it. Otherwise, how are you different than people who burn books? Wow. Well, I he guess burned by the not, books. not burning he was a, a mass book. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I guess like by simply like, you know, disliking something that you haven't read. I mean, yeah, that's like uh, a little bit prejudice, I guess, but... It's not the same as burning books and making them unavailable I mean, to others. Uh, I mean, but, this guy doesn't sound like, uh, well, yeah, like, like a raving Satanist. What does that have to do with Hodorowski? Like, what? I like, don't, I don't get it. Uh, I, it. Well, he was he was going to show, he was a fan of Hodorowski. Yeah, but then he was showing he was like, let me show you like this, uh, like Ted Gunderson video, like, because that's similar. Like, what? I, I guess he just brought along that disinfo series too. I wasn't aware of that. I guess that was a, a British program that was on for a while, maybe in the 90s that delved into some of these topics. Okay. Yeah, and I'd, I'd be interested to look more into that. But I, I thought that the Carl sorry, Jung and LeVay thing was- friend zone for being Satanist. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the girls you know, don't like I mean, it. You know, girls don't make passes don't, at guys who drink from, you know, uh, satanic glasses of- Yeah, don't mansplain uh, the devil blood. to her, dog, yeah. you know? Your 19-year-old uh, student. Yeah, this post is <laughs> extremely know. long because, yeah, I mean, he, yeah. you know, but I think the comparison of, like, LeVay, like, I think you might be surprised how similar LeVay and Carl Jung is in terms of satanic philosophy. Um, For me, that means, like, 
oh, now I'm like suspicious of Carl Jung. Not like, oh, really? Like LeVay is like Carl Jung? That means he's cool. You know what I mean? Carl Jung is yeah. one of these real liminal figures that like, yeah. uh, I don't know. Like I think Very, he had some yeah. interesting insights, but mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of when people kind of just quote him as like the, the same way they do with like Ram Dass or something like that, just like a great, yeah, brilliant thinker who is just here so therefore yeah like he like he's smart heard that name yep carl young oh that's sophisticated yeah 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 exactly exactly and levey just as smart like i it's funny like i I suggest you might be surprised at this i I, maybe he would be surprised at the similarities i've found between levey and ayn rand (laughs) yeah like much more similar to ayn rand or hitler than uh carl jung honestly like i don't really see i mean yeah like superficial ones insofar as like whatever anyway he doesn't um, really bring it back to hodorowski but it does kind of come back to hodorowski because you know who was screening uh a an exhibition of santa sangre just this last august right uh Another satanic temple like weird shit like yeah the satanic temple in salem was everywhere. Uh, yeah so so you know satanist love i that 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 was a thing like uh, to (laughs) in terms of hodoreski's like enduring influence i feel like he's very um i mean on the one hand i wonder how they feel about him you know like using these untested therapeutic techniques to try to cure like people's childhood traumas you know i feel like they generally have been against that so it, it, I don't you know. could see it's it in weird. a way of you like know, it not seems I think scientific even, like wait yeah wait a minute I thought one of the rules of Satanism was that you were supposed to always trust the science and not support like pseudoscientific <laughs> like therapeutic methods that like, is one of the seven satanic principles you know trust yeah the, like this, the ones that in this create temple false we memories, believe you know what if um, yeah exactly yeah. so I don't know I don't know I feel like they should like they should sue him or whatever they do whenever someone does something <laughs> they don't like, you know, they should like lobby to get a Baphomet statue. Placed yeah. Lawn, it's, it's also, like it, so. it, it's also kind of interesting because Santa Sangre, I know, I, I think, you, did you ever see it? Yeah, I have. I saw it. Okay. Yeah. Ago. I watched I it recently, it recently. Yeah. and mm-hmm. it, it is kind of, I guess it's a little liminal, but you know, there, there are kind of some like DID kind of vibes going on in that movie. Cause it's about a serial killer. Yeah who sees his mother get her arms chopped off. Right. Um, and his mother's, like a, his mother's a cultist. He's like a, a serial killer who you're supposed to like empathize with, you know? Uh, yeah, he's kind of a, yeah, sympathetic Dexter. serial killer. <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> but um, it's, it's actually very weird and it, it's kind of like a weird, like, uh, I don't know. It's like there's shades of psycho and like, I'm your puppet mm-hmm. because yeah, she, very, I'm very much and your correct puppet, me if I'm right? wrong. And there's also hypnosis in that too. Yeah, there's hypnosis. Yeah, yeah circus, exactly. Yeah. You yeah, hypnotize your lovers to do a, a like a knife throwing kind of exhibition, you yeah. know, where they throw the knife, mm-hmm. and then that there's also like a, a connection between the arousal, like women getting aroused at the the knife kind of yeah. throwing thing, and mm-hmm. there's things like that. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, because I felt like I saw somebody say that like like the it almost feels like the mother is a ghost inside of his head that is like kind of like psycho style is Hmm. possessing him but then i don't know like i guess it's also like i guess maybe she survives getting her arms cut off Um, i mean he uses yeah right okay right um yeah she died after being maimed and like then there's yes that's what i thought right 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 yeah i think some people i was reading a description of it and some people like 
got might that be open wrong. to interpretation. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, right. Some of the, well, because I think it's interesting. It's interesting the Satanic Temple, which really is just like a bunch of processed church stands. Yeah, um, and freaks. people that are obsessed with like the false memory syndrome foundation and stuff that they would pick this movie, which is kind of about like a DID serial killer. <laughs> like yeah. a, a traumatized boy. Well, there probably was a talk back afterwards about how like this is, you know, a great movie about satanic becoming and like, you know, taking ownership of your own destiny uh, in a good model. I don't know, but a really positive way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, or maybe they're like, and see, this is, these are the dangers of when, you know, uh, you remember being raped uh, or something, you know, so just don't remember because uh, it's just false. Um, yeah, and he's I mean, and he's he also had false in, memories that his mother was alive. Uh, so that's really the problem. Yeah, fall, yeah, you have the ultimate false memory. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, he's definitely like being haunted, and he's also in a mental institution as like a like as an adult. Like when mm. we meet him in this movie, he's like almost gone feral mm. in a mental institution, and then he sort of gets out, and then you know because he's crazy and his. Uh, yeah. Okay. So it is revealed near the at the end of the movie that Concha, his mother, actually died after having her arms cut off, and that is another scene where a guy gets castrated and immediately like goes mm-hmm. and like slits his own throat and kills <laughs> right, himself. Yeah. You know. So okay, there's that, and and so basically, yeah, you have the the kind of alternate personality of like his dead armless mother, and then he imagines that like she stands in front of him. And he dresses up his his hands to have like you know nail polish and like be like a woman's hands, and then she'll say like kill him. Basically, anytime uh, the the main character Phoenix, by the way, F E N I X, the main character is, um, I think played by Axel Hodorowski, who's the uh, yeah he's one of the children. He's one of the sons of uh, Alejandro. They go and uh, yeah, whenever there's like a sexual attraction thing. The mother appears and is like, you can't love anybody but me. Like, you have to kill them. (laughs) And so then, like, he's forced, often against his will, to, like, at one point he even hypnotizes somebody at his Mm -hmm. mother's insistence and then, like, kills them. And so, yeah, I mean, it's got kind of these, like, yeah, it's a, and I guess, yeah, the story was actually about dissociative identity disorder. Robert Leone, huh. who had worked in a library of a psychiatric hospital where he had been in contact with people suffering from mental disorders, developed a story about dissociative identity disorder that he told Claudio Argento during a time they worked together. Yeah. Arge- and so that's the brother of uh, Dario, Dario Argento. Argento, the father of Asia Argento, who is mm-hmm. a real yeah. sus piece of work. They're all kind of a little bit. All those Giallo movies. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and, and so I actually have kind of the same them. way that uh, El Topo is kind of like inspired by spaghetti westerns or like uses that kind of language. I would say Santa Sangre is kind of like that with a Giallo type movie. Yeah, I uh, would agree. Yeah. I would agree. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's like an interesting movie. Yeah. Was it 1989? I think so. Yeah, kind of uh, intriguing that the Satanic Temple, because it also, there's like a blood church in it. And the blood, (laughs) Santa Sangre is like a girl who is attacked and raped. And then the the rapists uh, ripped her arms off and she like bled to death. But then the supposed miracle is that like there's, I don't know, a little like fountain there that like her blood like is still there, like to this day. And so 
the Phoenix's mother is kind of like the high priestess of this like blood church that mm. worships Santa Sangre and like the corrupt Catholic bishop comes by and is like, this is sacrilegious, like tear all this down. And like the military is there to like basically uh, bulldoze it and everything. So, and then the mother, even in death is kind of uh, like, she's obsessed with defending her cult, her like mm. blood cult, you yeah. know? And all that jazz. So, yeah, I mean, eh, I don't know. Yeah. Um, kind of interesting. Um, and yeah. the other one, I didn't watch Tusk. That honestly just didn't appeal to me. I didn't want to watch a movie about an elephant. Yeah, I've never seen Tusk. What is it about? Is it about like an elephant being tortured and dying? Probably. <laughs> like Jolly West is like a guest star in it. Um, gives it enough LSD to kill it. Yeah, Wait, I'm not really, really sure. Uh, so, no, okay. No, I thought you were serious because I don't know anything no, about but it. It's, uh, it. Yeah, it, I know Tusk, that you made that movie called that. I keep thinking about the movie that Kevin Smith made about like a man being like mutilated and transformed into a walrus. But me too. I, I that's um, it's horrible that I think that, but yeah, uh, uh, that, that that's the first thought that comes into my mind. But share, that did happen. The screenplay concerns a young English girl and an Indian elephant who share a common destiny. Uh, is the destiny to be raped and killed in a horrible uh, way? Like, uh, I don't want to find it? out. I just don't want to find out. Uh, um, <laughs> I'm not. I don't know. Maybe somebody can tell us that actually, like, we're really missing out on Tusk, you know, to, I don't know. Um, it's weird that, like, the right around the same time, there was a Fleetwood Mac album, which actually was quite good, um, called Tusk, which is a metaphor for a penis. So, again, phallic, like, wow. Uh, Tusk is the only, I think, Hodorowski movie that you can just see, watch for free on YouTube. Like, somebody just uploaded it. So yeah, I think it's, it's like, not a... I guess uh, it's based on a children's book, so maybe it is, like, you know, not... I mean, but he, maybe he made it, like, grotesque in some way. Maybe. And then he also had the movie, like, The Rainbow Thief, which I, I apparently was a huge failure. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, yeah, it has Christopher Lee and Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif, the first movie to reunite the Lawrence of Arabia stars. And wow, it was actually okay. This is uh, it was filmed in Gdansk, Poland, I guess, right after the Cold War. Or no, it was 1990. Hmm, interesting. Wow, this is interesting. So uh, right at the end of communism. This is a description communism. of the plot of Tusk. Mm. Set in the turn of the century, India, uh, Hodorowski drops most of his crazed, mystical, religious, hallucinogenic stylings in order to tell a relatively straightforward story about a little girl. Elise and a little elephant, Tusk, both of whom were born at the same time and have their lives interconnect over the years. It begins on a good note with Hodorowski intercutting an elephant and a woman giving birth, but the movie swiftly turns into nothing more than a Disney G-rated nature film, with most of the five million budget going for Elephants R Us rentals. There are a few sledgehammer subtle points about French colonialism versus the forces of nature. Uh, of course, she has a tyrannical father, and there's a nutty Indian medicine man who pops up for comic relief. But there's just lots of long scenes of big animals in the countryside. Oh, but of course, she discovers a psychic link to the elephant uh, and stops it in his tracks during a rampage. Yeah, but they say it's mostly like, you know, predictable. But I guess, you know, the writer of this review is like, maybe Hodorowski was so desperate to get behind a camera after all his failed attempts at Dune that he grabbed the first thing to come along. Or maybe he simply wanted a free trip to India. Yeah, maybe I, I guess i can't hold that against it is him. weird that he made that movie like after all those like insane films like he just made this weird like movie of elephants but yeah maybe yeah just it's, it's also like the rainbow thief sounds kind of weird as well um yeah. like it's just it's kind of a out of yeah just a, yeah a kind of random i guess mm-hmm. so i don't know like yeah <laughs> other than that 
Christopher um, Lee is an eccentric millionaire who cares for no one but his Dalmatians. Okay. This seems kind of interesting. <laughs> right. Kind of interesting. Yeah, it's like about of what millionaires are doing with their, their money. There's Cro- a dog named Kronos, um, a big-breasted woman, big-breasted yeah, women big dressed in the colors woman. of the rainbow. Mm-hmm. Okay, whatever. Yeah. Now, speaking of millionaires, on his last episode, uh, uh, on one of his most recent interviews where like Darren Aronofsky was talking to him, it was like during COVID. Right. So I was kind of mm-hmm. curious you know, maybe to contrast him with another similar ish filmmaker, David Lynch, who like has become like the little simp of like, uh, NPR basically. Like he reads the mm-hmm. re- weather oh, reports on the radio. That about David Lynch. That's funny. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he's so busy just trying to sigh up everybody into doing yeah. TM that he's just like a fount of annoying positivity and like mm-hmm. doesn't have anything negative to say about shit, even though his movies are like a dark twisted roller coaster ride into like evil, like a the world of evil, you know, just like, You're like you, you can't. Why don't you want anyone to have fun? Today is Wednesday, November 13th. <laughs> the weather is sunny, 72 degrees. Like it's literally, that's what he does. Like, like several times, I don't know, at least once weird. a week on the radio in LA. And it's like, it's, it's cute and whatever, but I'm almost like I would put, even though like, Hodorowski is like cop to doing susser things. I think David Lynch is more sus. Uh, yeah. Well, it's weird (laughs) how like these people like you know they'll say like uh they want like you know they'll criticize like these mainstream movies be like they want us to be children, but then like they all do this weird stuff like my dream is to be a news weather reporter, like you know like some weird shit like that, you know, or like. Uh, I have to say, if I have to see that their childhood, like I have to say, if I have to see that meme about like the magazine article where David Lynch tells a story about how he bought like five Woody Woodpeckers, and then he says with like they are my friends, yeah, they're my friends, but then he says with a grim finality, they're not in my life anymore. That reminds me of like a lot of these things. Like I I often find myself reflecting on like that copy pasta that went around the internet. Like what? Like uh, do you remember? uh, I'm Katie, the Penguin of Doom. No, I don't. It was like a thing that like people would post on 4chan back in the day. Like you know, the joke was that like it was like this sort of young girl like uh who was like an LOL random type who like found her way to like the random board on 4chan and like you know was introducing herself like you know she was gonna be like a new member of like the forum community. Like uh, wow. I need to I need to find it now. Okay, yeah. Uh, I just this is a constant reference point for me like in my life like uh, surprisingly like I just think about this a lot. Like, and that story, like, reminds me of this. Hi, everyone. I'm new. Holds up, Spork. My name is Katie, but you can call me Te Penguin of Doom. LOL. As you can see, I'm very random. That's why I came here, to meet random people like me. Smiley face. I'm 13 years old. I'm mature for my age, though. I like to watch Invader Zim with my girlfriend. I'm bi. If you don't like it, deal with it. It's our favorite TV show because it's so random. She's random, too, of course, but I want to meet more random people. Like they say, the more the merrier. LOL. Anyways, I hope to make a lot of friends here, so give me lots of comments. Doom! Me being random again. Hee hee. Toodles. Love and waffles. Ted Penguin of Doom. So that's what wow. I feel like is that Woody Woodpecker story. That's what it like irresistibly makes me think of. It's like the uh, the ancestor of like the Gerblins, like TikTok person. Um, uh, yeah, kind of <laughs> the Gerblin person, or yeah, like uh, or just the, but just I feel like, like there's the whole a, idea of like dark, dark, like spooky, ooky, but like wacky. Okay, no, that that brings up actually, since we're on the topic of Reddit shit, uh, <laughs> okay, the, weird, sorry. the strangest thing I found, which is not even a product of Hodorowski himself, but in this in this whole uh, research quest, 
is I found apparently there was a movie in like 2012, an, an uh, some kind of film that is called Doggy Woggies Hoochie Woochies. <laughs> you told me about this, yeah. With a Z on, on the end of each. And it is apparently a like a shot by shot remake of Holy Mountain. Maybe not shot by shot, but it's a it's a remake of Holy Mountain. Uh, but only using like repurposed dogs. footage of dogs from other movies. Yeah, and it is called it has like a very like psychedelic like title, and it's called Doggy Woggies Poochie Woochies. And I feel like if anything sums up like 2012 Reddit um, humor or sensibility, and also I don't know maybe a lot of the Stan energy that gets like launched at like Hodorowski. I feel like that's is almost too sophisticated for like some of. I think the Woody Woodpecker story almost sums it up more, but I do see like the problem. It does. I mean, nowadays today, because people still like praise like a god like David Lynch and think that he's like so amazing. I thought it was funny in Hodorowski's Dune that he mentioned like going to see it in theaters and he didn't want to go, but his kids were like, "You have to, you have to." And at the end of it, he was just like. Oh my god, it's so bad! Like you know, he was like so excited that it was like the worst piece of shit ever. And I was I was with him in that moment because like I don't know, it's not so often you get to like you get to challenge like the the creepy Americana master himself who can do no wrong and is just the most brilliant fucking person. Everyone has to watch his twenty five hour fucking Twin Peaks remake on Showtime. That it's like 45 minutes of like atomic bomb footage with like, oh, just the fuck off. Like, Hodorowski is much more coherent You're than You're going to make Lynch. the person angry who wrote in the comments that it was like, you know, such a terrible scene to leave off uh, from the amazing new Twin Peaks and... Did you see that? I, I noticed that. Someone oh, yeah, like, yeah. You no, know, you're right. Because I, 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 you're yeah. right. Terrible I, I fucked place up. to stop. Yeah, you fucked up. I just, it's really hard for me to, to work up that I'm going to need to watch 13 hours of it. And it's gonna go somewhere. Um, I don't somewhere. think that you're missing anything. I mean, that like the fact that people not. like share that Woody Woodpecker thing and like this is like so wacky and funny. Like, okay, it's, like, I, okay. Stupid. Here's what I'll say: it's, like, literally like, something Lynch, a thirteen-year-old yes. would do. Like, yeah, and th- that's not cool to me, and that's not artist. Like, I feel like you can be. Are there, I don't know. Like, even though David Lynch will probably never do a Marvel movie, it's he's not. The type it reminds that would. me of like you know. It reminds me of like when people like buy things about how they're weird from like stores, you know, like uh, like wacky, like random stuff that they get from stores and they're like mass produced things like and therefore like it's the exact opposite of actually being eccentric. You know, it's like a weird like stock performance. There's nothing actually like eccentric about it. I don't know. But also, I think that one thing just to stick on this from like comparing Hodorowski and, and Lynch or <laughs> contrasting them with each other. I feel like David Lynch is somebody who never reveals his method or what anything means or what his fucking point is or anything else. Whereas Hodorowski, even though he used a lot of like cryptic surrealist imagery and played a lot of tricks and stuff like that, like in his films, one, they're still more coherent than like, most David Lynch movies, maybe putting aside like Blue Velvet, uh, which was like pretty good, uh, a really good movie. But uh, but, you know, like not only that, but like I think in his autobiographical works, he really walks you through kind of like and he tries to sort of show you like how did certain things get embedded into my consciousness to the point where I wanted to express them in my later films and stuff like that. And like what things around me from my world like inspired me, scared me, like you know, shaped me and all this other stuff. Like he's a little more interested in kind of like 
peeling back the curtain a little bit mm-hmm. and kind of showing you. Now, he might still be like a sus lord, but mm-hmm. at least he's not putting I mean, on yeah, this flex I do like, uh, of like, you'll never know what I meant. <laughs> but actually, like, yeah, I do think it, I like it can become uh, a license to just get away with anything. David Lynch. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I have, like, a little bit of, like, yeah, I have a certain dislike for the genius David Lynch that I just can't, like, you know, so I don't know. Like, I'm not, like, super big on Hodorowski either, uh, you know, what do I like? You know, but anyway, no, like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I think... We're just uh, crossing them off the list Yeah, uh, they're all bad. Down. You're not allowed to listen to anything. We're going to take over the government, and we're going to take away <laughs> everything that you love. Like, watch out. Everything is satanic. Yeah, everything is Everything is either bourgeois or satanic or both. Uh, yeah, we're going to slap a parental advisory sticker on everything, and you're not going to be able to get it because your mom's going to say no. Yeah. That's the real treats discourse. They, yeah. They will... They they will com- they will commit horrors if they don't get their entertainment treats. They, yeah, if we don't get to see, I don't know, like whatever, um, like Wild at Heart, then we're gonna d- do a, yeah. a pogrom or something. On <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna put we're we're gonna get put in the re-education camp for insisting that Satan is real. It's um, gonna be like that thing in uh, Red Dawn where like you know they're making them watch like those Soviet propaganda films like in a giant open air like <laughs> camp, but instead it's like a bunch of David Lynch movies. <laughs> Call it, avenge me. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> avenge me. I'm like yeah. waving a copy of Program to Kill in the air. Like, yeah, exactly. Like While like in the background, the like, butt. you know, it's like the only light is from like a bleak screen, like just playing of, Twin like, Peaks. Like Lucian Greaves yeah, like, yeah, introducing yeah. like yeah. a Twin Peaks that marathon. Mo- yeah, that like that documentary, like Hail Satan. Like he's just Satan, endlessly maybe. playing. Like, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, it's been such a process. Watch week, out. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, a very, the yeah, process it's, sickos at the city. Yeah. It's temple, a process to Hodorowsky, deal with all these people who love process. Um, it would be cool if, like, Hodorowsky would, like, he could go a long way if he just comes out and says, like, I think evil is bad. Yeah. He would definitely immediately be canceled then. Then people right. would care that he raped someone. Well, yeah, see, yeah, yeah. Then um, it would suddenly become a thing. Like, uh, uh, yes, but okay. I was yeah. gonna say, like, in his slight defense, because I listened to like his most recent like coronavirus era kind of rambling like conversation with Darren Aronofsky, where like mostly just Hodorowsky like talks the whole time and like his like admittedly mm-hmm. very entertaining and like kind of I think beguiling like broken English, but he just kind of going off about how the pandemic is. Again, very it's still a very like pox on everyone's house anarchist a little bit, but just mm-hmm. like this is you know idiot moment. This <laughs> right. pandemic is so it is idiotic idiot moment uh in the culture. And so he believes that things are like going in a very bad way uh overall. Like the the politics is utterly corrupt and like you know pretty much beyond redemption uh business is evil and taking over the world you know the climate's getting fucked up uh but he did you know he was talking about the uh you know the, the pandemic and the response in general and he was kind of saying some stuff about you know he didn't name any any names of specific doctors that uh we i mean he is in france after all so he's not seeing dr fauci on tv every day mm-hmm. but he's like you know this is a new thing we, we don't think about the medical as you know, industry, the, all the money being made, you know, all these uh, vaccines and uh, things of the treatments and the, it's all a business, you know. And Darren Aronofsky is just trying to be like a polite liberal who doesn't want his blue check to get pulled and be like, oh, uh, yeah, that's very uh, interesting, you know. Like, <laughs> and uh, I think at one point he starts like is going off on a tangent about Bill Gates and how Bill Gates like, you know, just because he's a genius businessman, he thinks that 
he's a genius in medicine. But yeah. <laughs> like, when I listen to Bill Gates speak, I, he, this is not the speech of a man who is enlightened. I think he maybe he <laughs> yeah. should go off and do a self-improvement, self-discovery or something with his time. I'm like, okay, hard to at least, uh, at least yeah. he's not like David Lynch, who's like, I'm not leaving my house until I get my fourth booster shot. And you shouldn't either. Which is literally kind of like what he, that's his vibe. You know, uh, hmm. uh, Mr. Like spotting the dark underbelly of America everywhere is just hiding in his compound in the Hollywood Hills until he gets his like 19th booster. 19th booster. Radical. Mm. Um, and yeah, you know, I mean, Podoreski at least is like he is that anarchist poet guy who doesn't really like he doesn't seem to have any desire to, you know, ca- I mean, he's also 93. So like, whatever, he doesn't have to do anything else in his life, but, uh, yeah. but he's, I mean, he's down on the Hollywood how, like, system. And well, I mean like his shit. greatest films really were El Topo and the Holy Mountain. I think like, you know, since then he's kind of coasting on the legacy of those things, you know, and maybe some of like the ideas that he generated, like while trying to conceive Dune, but yeah, yeah like, I feel like generally like religious films, like, I mean, it's interesting to think about some of these big, like, tentpole, like, uh, or relative tentpole, like, sort of uh, religious films, like, uh, from Iran or from the Arab world that have been made recently. Like, uh, in fact, I heard that, like, I think Cotter is trying to do, like, a big, like, uh, Muhammad film, you know, oh, because, yeah, like, usually, like, these, like, Christian movies, like, you, you know, uh, you're a pure flicks uh, aficionado as well at this point. So, you know, like, what uh, the evangelicals are producing in terms of, like, cinematic content. Like, it's not uh, really something to, uh, you know, write home about. Um, and, a lot of yes. room for growth. Yeah, definitely. So, like, you know, in terms of, like, religious films, like, coming out of, like, the American uh, film industry or, like, ancillary kind of sub-industries, like, uh, sort of whatever operations the the pure folks people have set up like they kind of like are either like you're like shitty or like they're just real like you know they're made by some kind of like bizarre occultist with some kind of like yeah or they're horror films it's like horror is the only genre that can like kind of grapple with religion in a significant way yeah it's true yeah um, like it's, but it, uh, otherwise it's often going on pure still flights. yeah often still like only like on uh in a very like superficial or like surface way a lot of the time but yeah i, I take your point or uh like ridley scott's uh noah or whatever or was it or mm. did darren aronofsky do noah that was darren aronofsky uh, yeah yeah ridley scott yeah, did so something I guess they else have that right or did common. he do exodus yeah, maybe he did Exodus, and it was I like a weird. Ex- I didn't even know there was an Exodus. Um, there was an Exodus, but it was like forgotten. It might not even have been Ridley Scott, but Christian Bale was in it. Uh, Exodus: Gods and Kings, right? Yeah, it was Ridley wow. Scott. Yeah, I got this too confused. Uh, but yeah, it was totally forgotten. I think everybody hated it. But yeah, Noah was an unusual movie. Yeah. That would be. I mean, there used to be those old Sword and Sandal, you know, Cecil B. DeMille and all yeah. that jazz. Uh, yeah, 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 that, not they super had their big day. nowadays. Yeah, but it's yeah, that was weird because yeah, definitely the Sword and Sandal stuff. You know, Ben Hur. Uh, yeah, you know, like there's a man, but you know now we have Thor, him so Christ, we have Taika yeah, exactly. Waititi's Thor. So <laughs> yeah, we don't I mean, need, come on. Uh, <laughs> you yeah, know, like, mm. Uh, mm. yeah. I think the he he's a liminal figure, Hodorowski. He certainly um, is. I think that people, you know, very aesthetically uh, gifted, um, you know, magician of the medium. Yeah. Also very ripe for like misinterpretation or I think I, I think a lot of people took a lot of like cool stylized nihilism out of El Topo, mm-hmm. but kind of left any of the, like the spiritual stuff behind. It's just like, I don't know, maybe people I think Ni- Nicholas Ruffin is a 
like an interesting director, but like there's so much more just like black pilled nihilism and like just like the fucked up parts of like Hodorowsky's movies kind of than yeah. or like a Lars von Trier or I mean even an Ari Aster Ari Aster plays around some themes, but you know, it's like it's Yeah. That that ends up being the expression in American culture, which is interesting. Um, yeah i mean i feel like ultimately like like when you have like that eclectic kind of approach to the stuff like a gurdjieffian like approach it ends up being like i don't know like there there is like kind of like a spiritual void like it's like trippy and like crazy and like you know it might like make you think and like deal with like you know uh profound ontological themes of like life and death you know and things like that but ultimately like you know it's kind of circular or like self-negating or like doesn't really like have any like core to it you know it is like Idris Shah you know it's all kind of like extracted of like the marrow that's how I feel like a lot of these like sort of that's how I feel about a lot of these new age spiritualities. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's every religion except for like, Islam is canceled. And, uh, you know, <laughs> not allowed to listen to any music or watch any movies. No. <laughs> okay. It's all so, Haram. Uh, yeah. Or, or uh, it's the Western imperialist psyop. Um, yeah. No, but I, I do think it's interesting that, I mean, maybe it's like just me, but the parts of, say, like the Holy Mountain that were kind of this like horrific like social satire social or political satire or like the end of el topo with like the illuminati town like those resonate me with the most deeply because they feel like they're actually i don't know like making a kind of moral judgment on the world mm-hmm. in a way that yeah the really more far well, out like the like, critique mystical and shit the isn't. satire like you know that's you know yeah exactly where like i like i feel there's a positionality being expressed yeah, that I can either get behind is. or not. But then when it's kind of just like, well, like I'm gonna poop in a beaker. But, yeah, well, and like then, most like- anarchists, there's no like you know, like most occultism, <laughs> they're like it settles into kind of like a quote unquote apolitical, like reactionary pose, and also like most like like a lot of criticism or a lot of anarchists sort of it doesn't not really a positive program at the end of the day. It's just kind of like suck your own dick, you know, literally. You know, or <laughs> yeah, like, kind or let of. Me, you know. Let me grab it and like channel manliness into you so that you don't have to be upset at your father. I don't know. Um, yeah. 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 It's not quite, um, you know, maybe Che Guevara had, <laughs> I don't know, the dialectical combination. I would definitely take Che Guevara over Hodorowsky. Um, yeah. Well, maybe if there was a combo of both of them. I don't know. But. <laughs> Yeah. I wouldn't even think about that. But still, I mean, interesting films. Yeah. Well made. I definitely think uh, that people will uh, appreciate like them. And there's, you know, you can take them in all sorts of directions. You know, you can be like, well, here's an obvious analysis. You know, the, this is a satanic ritual, blah, blah, blah. So lots of symbolism <laughs> ripe for dissection. If that's your thing, yeah. there's plenty of it to be had here. For sure. Yeah, but you know, we'll we'll, we'll see if uh, some of these other we'll we'll circle back. We got a lot of yeah. Gurdjieff stuff He's that got dug up time. today. Yeah, what the Gurdjieff will do. Yeah, and Hodorowski is definitely of a certain era that I'm sure we'll return to. I mean, we still have to do Sauce Beatles, and uh, you know, we do and Alan Klein. Mm. Yeah, 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 and John, yeah, John Lennon, Yoko Ono, who like she's definitely on the the radar as what was she up to? You know, yeah. Exactly. Work, working out the imperial Japanese uh, plot. Uh, anyways, um, <laughs> that's for another day. But for yeah. now, we'll leave it there. And until next time, dear listeners, stay vigilant. Peace. <laughs>